flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot on a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing boss scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish that every time we do it, it feels just like this. Welcome to a new episode of The Debrief. Episode 101, I believe. I hope everybody's been doing okay. I know it's been a busy week on the internet and beyond. We're a day uh, before midterms. That's probably what's on everybody's mind. But I wanted to allow Aaron Mate and Max Blumenthal a chance to respond uh, to some of the comments that Joe Serencioni made on the now infamous interview, which if you haven't caught it, I released in full today for everyone, not just patrons, uh, due to accusations by Joe that I had edited the content to make him appear unfavorably. So you can definitely go to Bad Faith YouTube and find the entire hour-plus long interview with Joe Serencione. And you should also watch the free clip that's up there or the full clip if you're a Patreon over at patreon.com slash Podcast of my interview with Aaron Mate and Bronco Marktetek. Uh Max was supposed to join, wasn't able to make it, um, but we'll definitely be having follow-up conversations with him. I want everyone to know that he was invited and that I look forward to talking to him again in the future. And you probably are already aware that he joined me for a live stream. The last time he was um, smeared on bad faith, uh, that time by Representative Ro Khanna. Uh And so, yeah, I want to open the floor to talk about Today's interview, which got into much more substance. I mean, I'm constantly just really blown away by the gap in substance that you get from talking to one side of this discussion versus the other. I, I'm really trying to be open to arguments that are being made all around. But on one side, a lot of arguments are being made and a lot of direct history is being referenced. And on the other side, you do tend to get a lot of just ad hominem attacks and smears and the like. And that's not to say that one side is unimpeachable or things can't be wrong or that there can't be multiple perspectives going on here. But it makes it very difficult when the side that thinks that they're righteous and just and which is best represented in the 
broad mainstream media sphere doesn't seem to feel like there's any responsibility for it to back up its arguments in any substantive way. Um, and so, again, I'm very grateful to Bronco and Aaron for joining me on the show. And I will turn it over to you guys to hear what's on your mind. Howard, you're up first. What are you thinking about this evening? Howard? I see you're unmuted, Howard, but I cannot hear you for some reason. Can you guys hear Howard? I can hear you. Can you Oh, hear there me? you go. Yeah, there you go. What's on your mind tonight, Howard? Hey. Oh, so much, Bree. Um, first of all, I just want to say that you have handled this um, just with amazing grace and intelligence. And, you know, that's why they get so frustrated and are attacking you. Um, mm. And uh, it's been very uh, enlightening uh, because, you know, you would think that if there was merit to this, uh, uh, the side that, that had kind of the most, um, credulity credulity to their uh um argument wouldn't need an army of trolls you know i don't mm -hmm. see any pro-russian trolls uh coming on and and attacking you know uh, although they, they might say that we are but um i don't see any pro-russian trolls coming on and attacking uh uh people who are um you know pro-ukraine and and uh or, or who believe that this is a just war and you know Ukraine is the victim. Well, they think um, that that's us. They think that right. that's exactly. Aaron and me and Max and everybody else that they don't like. They they call us trolls while simultaneously a, a, a cadre of Shiba Inus are literally in our mentions by the dozens <laughs> and hundreds. What did that other guy say? Ukrainian uh, dog Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was a great... Uh, quip um but you know we know that we're not yeah and we know that they are so it it you know having that insight really just to me lends a lot of credibility to um and removes any lingering doubt about you know what our intentions are in this war um you know and what's really going on um so yeah uh, i'll mm -hmm. go ahead also wanted to say that um uh sabby did a wonderful show uh, that I listened to, you know, just talking again about the substance of this. And, and uh, I just um, encourage everybody to, to listen to her as well, because uh, she's, she's fantastic. And um, just keep it up. We got your back uh, and uh, keep the faith. Thank you. And I second that. I caught some of Sabi's programming. And if you're not already following her, please do go over, follow and subscribe. Make sure you're subscribed to all of these kinds of left channels. It really helps boost us in the algorithm because it's tough out here. And thanks for calling in, Howard. Keep the faith. Sure. Uh, Bert, you're up. Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. I am unmuted. Hi. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. A little, a little tired from my travels this weekend, but happy to chat. Well, you what, work all the time, so you've got to be prepared. It's like you put out content. and Anyway, um, 
I wonder if Mr. Sorencioni seen any of the shit that's been hurled at you. And, and, I mean, this guy said, she attacked me. Like, please, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look at what a real attack on somebody looks like. And then mm-hmm. I, I he, he made a couple good points over the course of the interview. Like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, there are no, were no massive troops on Russia's border. There was no invasion of Russia that they were responding to. There was no attack on Russia. So, yeah, it was a violation of international law and all that. But I, I, some of the stuff like the border since World War II, really? No, no uh, European borders have been changed since World War II up until this point. I don't yeah. think so. I think he might have missed a uh, certain Slavic country that was broken up into like six different pieces. Yeah. Um, and the, the weird focus on Europe, it's not really clear why why that's the line in the sand either. Except for that he, you know, he ultimately did admit that it was about maintaining the uh, global order or whatever. I, I don't mean to put words in his mouth, whatever term. The rules-based order. Rules-based did he use that word? order, yeah. Yeah, I think so. And oh, that, I mean, that's man. all I really want. Like international law isn't good enough. Like the UN Charter isn't good enough. We have to have something to replace it called the rules-based order, in which, as, um, what's his name, Ben Norton said, the U.S. Uh, makes the, the rules and orders everybody else around. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's um, just, just what people would be honest about, because if we're honest about it, they have all this back and forth about... It's not that the, it's well, not that if they were honest about if these people were honest about things, nobody would support them because if they were honest and they expressed the true motives of what they were up to, um, I'm talking about like in terms of foreign policy and all that, um, then they they could the the their whole basis of, of what they do is lies. It's lies at the very least. By omission, you know what they don't tell us, as opposed to the the, the lies of commission. Um, anyway, thank you for taking my call. I'm gonna go ice my knee, and you have a great oh. rest. <laughs> you too, Bert. Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Bye bye. Keep the faith. Hey, Fractal. How's it going? What's on your mind tonight? What up, though, Miss Drugger? I'm doing all right. How are things on your end? How's the beautiful family? Uh, well, my dad's back home from being sick, so that's great. Um, okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Oh, that was my life. She was at, Bree was asking how you were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's doing okay. Yeah, I wonder how um, that natural hair queen is doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's doing fine, you know, just getting ready for graduation. Um, oh, got the right. gown and whatnot. So, but uh, thank you for that. I'll tell you, you said so. Um <laughs> I did not forget my homework with um, grandma. I just haven't had a chance to do it. I've been um, first wanted to put out that I'm phone banking here in Michigan for proposal three to have Roe v. Wade in our state constitution. So, um, I, so I don't know. I put it in the chat. I think that it's just scrolling. I don't know if there's anywhere I can post it if anybody wants to volunteer. Because the great thing here is that we have it as a ballot initiative, which is what I worked on this past spring and summer petitioning people, which was a very interesting experience. Um, How so? Well, when you can convince 
old white grandmas that are conservative to sign a petition to have a fair fight about, you know, abortion, it's it's a great experience. Mm-hmm. When you have an experience of getting young front voters who lean more libertarian and say, you know what, I think women should have the right. Mm-hmm. When you have an experience of a young white couple in a suburb around Detroit and the white guy signs it, but the white girl doesn't, it's mm-hmm. interesting. It is so what interesting. Was, what was that about? I don't know. They were on a date. It's just it was so interesting. It's my first day too. Huh. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's just interesting. And the way to do it is just like, I, I literally used um, the funky academics terms of we should be opposed properly. Don't let a judge in the Supreme Court or in the state of Michigan or a politician here or there decide this because they don't care about us. They're just taking money from from these corporations, which don't care about us anyway. If we disagree, we should disagree properly. Like in basketball, we decide what out of bounds is. And if you don't like it, you can make another petition drive and we do it all over again. That's how I ended up getting a lot of conservatives to sign for this. Mm. And the way to start off was with the payday lender loans, because conservatives hate them so much. And the interesting thing is I've even learned from my boss that a lot of people in the state of Michigan do not identify as Democrat anymore. Mm. And it with surprised me given how we, what we saw with the, the down ballot um, choices in 2016. Not, yeah. With, and, with, and with leaving, you know, leaving the top blank and then, you know, not voting for Hillary Clinton and voting Democrat on the way down and, and having the choice to, to split the ticket like that. And it seems like people, Michigan voters are very willing <laughs> to speak yes. their mind yeah no yeah and i can tell you whether you're in the suburbs whether you're in the city people are pissed at both parties mm. and when i told them hey if there was ever a time to protest vote now's the time you can't threaten me with the presidency no matter how you felt about it no matter how you felt about it and whether it was a conservative trump voter or if it was a liberal moderate or dim- or a progressive they were like you know what That makes sense. And we have choices here in Michigan. Green Party, the working class party. The people have been Mm -hmm. saying that Detroit will not have any black representation because Rashida Tlaib has the other seat. And they got Shri Thanadar who ran against Abdullah Saeed when he ran for um, governor. The fake Bernie um, bro. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's another one of these Dr. Oz dog killers. Uh huh. And here's the funny thing: I, I met a veteran when I was taking care of some stuff for my dad and looking up his case. The white guy who was in Iraq, who was like, "Yeah, it was pretty common practice for black veterans to not get their proper rank in the '60s, and it go to white guys." And he mm-hmm. printed off his whole file. He said, "Yeah, my brother-in-law, he worked for Shri Thanadar. He's a crook. He made Viagra mm-hmm. that didn't work and made him sick. Sold it off, and then went from being a Republican to a Democrat." But there's a black woman in the working class party who's running for that seat for the federal government. So, you know, got choices. But I said, uh, Simone, her name was Simone. I cannot remember her last name right now. But the working class party was started in Michigan. And a lot of people who started it were union workers and they worked on uh, workers' rights as well as racial issues. Okay. So how are you feeling? Yeah, so, so are you, I mean, I, it sounds like you have some degree of optimism about what's going on in Michigan politics. Uh, I just, my optimism is that people, when you talk to people on the ground, they're aware. I'm still very much aware that people watch, you know, MSNBC, especially doing the phone banking. You know, people talk about Rachel Maddow, Frontline, you know, Dateline, Frontline, all that stuff. But it's just that people are aware of what's going on. 
And you will get some people who will re regurgitate, whether it's liberal propaganda or conservative propaganda, whatever it is. But uh, on the streets, people understand what's going on. And even when I ran into some very uh, right wing evangelical Christians who couldn't uh, <laughs> who couldn't stomach the argument that I had uh, scripturally about abortion as to why you should allow it from Ecclesiastes chapter six, verse three through six. Um, they actually were like, you know what? They're trying to divide us. They're trying, it's a class war and they're trying to make us hate each other. Mm. So it, it is interesting. What's and, the scriptural and, argument? Oh, um, if you read it, it was written by King Solomon. I remember you talking about this, how they don't bring in the Supreme Court, but King Solomon wrote this in the time, the context when there was peace on all sides for Israel. There was so much silver that it was like worthless. So there's not a money issue or a safety issue. This was a civil, a civil liberties issue. And you have to remember that King Solomon is the king, is the son of King David. And King David, because he messed up by taking another man's wife and killing the husband, it messed up his whole household. One of his sons raped one of his, raped his half sister and didn't do anything about it. And so his other son was mad because that was his full blood sister and then ended up killing him. And then they had a war eventually years later. And so since Solomon was there for all of that, and if you look at um, the genealogy, there's a lot of bore, there's a lot of quote unquote boring scriptures, but it goes through the genealogy on Jesus's uh, family from his mother's side, his biological, and then Joseph, his name and they both linked to King David down the line, distant, distant relatives. Jesus never came through Amnon and Tamar. So you can't say this with Tudor Dixon, who's running for governor, no exceptions for the life of the mother, no exceptions for rape or incest. It's like, well, this isn't about Jesus. So who is this for? But the scripture um, itself says that a man could live a hundred years, father many children, but if he doesn't have any enjoyment or contentment in life or even a decent burial, it'd be better that he be born dead. In fact, he wouldn't have a name. He wouldn't have even seen anything under the sun. He would have more rest than the other. And even if the other man lived a thousand years twice over with no contentment, don't they all go to the same place, the grave? Mm. That's what it says. So people... Okay. People don't talk about that. Okay. Numbers no, five is what... Jane Hugo would bring up about how if you suspect that the woman cheated and so on and so forth, you go to the priest, there's a magic potion. If she did, the baby would be aborted. And both the man and the woman are supposed to be stoned to death for adultery. But if the woman didn't, the man can never divorce her. He had to apologize. There's a fee, all of that, because you disgraced her and thought that she was cheating and made her go through this whole. It, that That's pretty much what I remember. You can read up on it on numbers five kind of a lot as far as I can tell. <laughs> well, yeah, there was, there's a whole lot of laws that people don't think about. But the, but the point I'm making is, is people don't know what they're talking about. And if you think about all the um, people who end up in gangs, the people who end up doing violence and the white supremacists, they were all abused by their parents. And unfortunately, when I studied um, marriage and family, the sociology of it, since most fathers aren't in the household, which is what we hear about all these young white men, and just people in general, who does the abuse in the household since the fathers aren't there by circumstance? Mm. Exactly. So, and mo so therefore, 
as Irony said, to force a woman to have a child is forced labor, literally, and forced family, which is a vestige of chattel slavery. So, but um, I'll link this to your topic today. All of this comes to um, what I think this show is really about, which is the word integrity. And I may have said it before, but integrity, how I learned it as a freshman, is not just following what you believe, but checking to see if what you believe is right. Mm-hmm. So whether it's the right wing or the left wing um, of like, whether it's the conservatives or the liberals, all they fight about is based upon that and them not doing that work. And this show literally holds captive all those philosophies, those ideologies and other scripture that I think Paul wrote. It holds them captive and tests them because the truth isn't afraid to be tested. What my wife, um, who's also a gamer like me, she pointed one of her one of our favorite writers for a video game named Yoko Taro, who does the near near Automata Dragon Guard series. And when he made those video games, he made them after 9-11 when that happened to us. And he said, if you look at the atrocities that U.S. foreign policy did, this guy's from Japan in the Middle East. He says something I could never forget. He said that it shows that you don't have to be insane to commit an atrocity or a homicide. You mm-hmm. just have to believe you're right. Yeah. And that's yeah, what's going really on. So you guys are not, you're not going to believe this, <clears throat> but I, I was in Boston over the weekend for my friend's birthday. And when I was coming home today uh, and took a lift to the airport, I got in the car, started chatting with the driver and he tells me that he loves Joe Biden. Really? I said, okay. Interesting. Why? He says, because I'm Ukrainian and it, Trump wanted to withdraw aid for Ukraine and, you know, Biden is going to fight Russia um, to the end. Hmm. Said, okay. And he showed me, pulled up on his phone, and I have a picture of it because I know everyone likes to tell everyone that they're lying when they type these Lyft driver stories. But he had a, he had drawn a portrait. He had felt so passionately about it that he had drawn a portrait of Biden. It was pretty darn good, actually. A <laughs> picture of Biden? Mm, he's in it, kind of amateur portrait artist. Oh, wow. This older gentleman. Okay. So I decide that I don't, well, I don't, it's a long ride to the airport, and I'm honestly just not trying to get into it right now. Right. So we have a nice, pleasant conversation about his grandkids and everything else in the world. And then as we start to get up a little closer to the airport, and I know I'm not going to have to be in the car that longer, I feel like I could open the door back up to just, I'm not trying to argue with this man. I just want to know how he feels about it and what his perspective is. And so I float, I just float like, Hey, what do you say to people who are concerned about NATO not holding up its end of the bargain with with regards to saying it wouldn't expand and other kinds of provocations. And what he said to me was, and I'm telling this, this is coming back to what you were saying, Fractal. He says, Putin is evil. <clears throat> Russian, no, he said, Russians are evil. Mm-hmm. And that it's a lie no one ever committed on paper anywhere not to expand NATO. <laughs> yep, it's a Putin talking point. And that Russians, Russians, not just even Putin, but Russians are evil. And when you say something, Fractal, like about how you know, when you when you characterize an enemy that way and when you think in those kinds of terms, it can justify almost anything. And I, I found myself thinking about this because I really like this guy. And I believe that he believed himself to be unequivocally in the right. 
Yep. So that if I had unpacked anything, any of my own beliefs, he would have seen me as villainously as he sees all Russians apparently. And right. I'm not trying to get into it about with him about his life experiences, which I'm sure he's had, which substantiate and validate his worldview. Mm-hmm. But it's so on its face obvious to me that that is a a toxic road to go down. Because what does that mean? Already we've moved from Russian leadership, Putin is evil, to Russians are evil. And that's 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 the kind of door, that's the kind of language that does open oneself up to genocide and the kinds of things that are being floated around about Russians. And it, and and it's, I, it is dangerous and it's scary and it may be it, very sad. It is. It is. And I, and I remember, I think Jimmy had something on where they showed where people in England were like, you know, the Russians, they may look like us, but they're not quite exactly like us. Like that's where the Russophobia was going in the very beginning of this, when they all decided to do the sanctions and where this goes is this goes to show that's part of the human condition is people will fight and will do things because they believe they're right. The reason why your guest who has smeared you did this, I don't know what his influences are, but he believes he's right. The reason why the liberals are believing like, no, there's no way there are no Nazis over there, even though there's evidence. Same thing with um, Russiagate, same thing with QAnon, same thing with Trump. And People can know something but believe something different. It's not that conservatives couldn't believe in global warming, like rather that they couldn't understand it. They understood it. They just don't want to believe it. Because when you have to question your beliefs, you have to be held accountable. And accountability, like my pastor said, is a lot like forgiveness. It's a great idea until it's your turn. Yeah. So, but um, I hope um, I, I did enjoy that conversation. The question I'm still thinking on, and I'm actually going to ask my wife who studies this, when does a nation, and I think y- y'all cleared the parameters when there's no involvement by the U.S. like it was in mm-hmm. South Africa, like it is here or Haiti. When does a nation get involved? Because there is a thing such as a right to intercede because you don't let an atrocity happen. But the nuclear part is interesting. And we really didn't get a clear answer on that, except that you step very cautiously. You should go through the U.N. But um, another yeah. another yeah. Mm-hmm. a show I watched is um, and, and, and it's called Gundam Double O. And it's about what would it be like if a private organization tried to end war by mm-hmm. having great power it gets into it very in the beginning and you'll see the factions of the american and union and then africa and europe come together i, I highly wa- i highly recommend you watch it it's called gundam double o and they try to end war and it's like how do you go through that when one of the guys who was a he calls himself a gundam meister he was in a, a war-torn country as a child and he says while you all are deliberating people are dying yeah. He was Curtis, basically. So it's it's an interesting question. I still think we have to answer as leftists because that is the right question. I I think so too, and it's a hard one that I don't necessarily and didn't when I put it to Matt Dust, I didn't expect him to have an off an answer off the dome. When I put it to Joe Serencioni, I didn't expect him to have an offer off off the dome. And when I put it to Aaron and Bronco, Bronco today, I didn't ask expect them to have an answer. But it is troubling to me that that isn't the main preoccupation that we're all dealing with in the public sphere. Yeah, we're dealing with something completely different. (laughs) I don't have to prove, I'm not expecting anybody to prove, you know, like me agreeing with 
Aaron and co. about the historical prelude to this conflict does not necessarily dictate how I feel about U.S. involvement right now. Just like me disagreeing with Joe doesn't, or supporting the letter, like none of these, the, all of the opinions I'm having are sub the main, the, the, you know, they, they don't actually get to the, the, the core of the issue, which is right. what should we do now? And this is what I was going back and forth with Aaron and Bronco a little bit about, because when I put that question to Aaron and Bronco, they were both kind of like, well, look at all the things that America has done to lead us up to this point. And like, I completely agree. And I completely agree that that's why we can't have this kind of flat description of what has happened here as an unprovoked invasion and in all the ways that the mainstream media characterizes it. And it also right. makes me very skeptical about why the U.S. is involved in this conflict. But I think as the left, we would have a much better position if we could articulate the standards by which we would agree to intercede or alternatively make a very strong case for why we think we actually will embrace the idea of being isolationists or whatever. One of the other. We need a standard. Yeah, we need a standard. We but can't. It, it to seems too. Yeah, which is a whole issue in this country. We don't have standards. Which the is, bars which on the is freaking very floor. Hard. <laughs> which is very hard. Yeah, and I, and I didn't, didn't expect anyone to be able to answer it. But like at some point, <laughs> we have to start being able to answer this question. Somebody has to start being able to answer this question. Right. And the right, you asked the right question. If we were in a situation where it was Hitler, even though we were involved with Hitler too, <laughs> we very much were, but let's say we're not involved and there's a Hitler situation. And this kind of ties in a little bit to China and the Uyghur Muslims, because there's a lot of back and forth about that. And there's not um, peer reviewed stuff that's out there yet. And I appreciate Max Blumenthal saying none of this stuff is peer reviewed. Let's have a real investigation before we just go in. But at some point, at some point, you may come across a nuclear power doing something what Hitler did. Then what does the whole international community do? That is the great question. And then let alone if it gets to the chemical warfare or autonomous weapons, which we're not even talking about because last year they all voted to allow the research, even though smaller countries didn't want it. And that's a really scary thing. And then if we get to autonomous nuclear weapons, that's even more dangerous. So um, but I don't want to take up too much more time. I got to run to the store before they close and right, uh, hope you can still get Scott Ritter on. Yeah. And, you know, I hope you can get Scott Ritter in. Hope you can still have this call in with Dr. West. I'm sorry to keep bugging you about it, but <laughs> but I think I think he will, he will have a great perspective on all of this. Um, um, better uh, one who I, I I admire and look to for spiritual insight, but also philosophical and political um, and bringing it all together as he does. So um, just uh, and do you know where I could post the link for the phone banking for anybody i don't know if i could just post it again in the chat or who i could send it to in case anybody wants to join in. in the chat well if you if you add it if you add it at me on twitter i'm happy to retweet it as well if that's gotcha helpful. all right um, i'm trying to i'm trying to stay off social media but i can do that I don't, I don't know if i could if i could message you through here or through patreon i don't know if you i know you get lots of messages so you might not see it but i can i could do twitter for this one i will that's yeah i think that would be the easiest thing it's always good to hear from you fractal Good to hear from you as well. Take care. Keep the Take care. Keep the faith. Oh, so I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Fractal. Write write whatever you wanted me to tell tell whatever in the in the chat. Um Lysol, how you doing? Hey Bree, can you hear me? I can. What's on your mind? On on the first try. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um so I I love it when the stuff lines up like this. The the part about like, well, I wish somebody would articulate 
you know, like proper reasons why we would actually intervene. Are you familiar with the Powell Doctrine? Yeah. I mean, no. Well, the, the Powell Letter? Uh, no, no, no. The, the Powell Doctrine. It's something Colin Powell came up with. The Wikipedia says oh, no. 1991. They were teaching it when I was in college in the mid-2000s. It's uh, eight points, and it's pretty common sense of stuff like, is a vital national security interest threatened? Do we have a clear, attainable objective? Is there a plausible exit strategy? Have we exhausted all nonviolent policy means? Have the risks and costs been fully analyzed? Is action supported by the American people? Is action supported by the international community? The, name the, say the first one again. The first one was... National security interests? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, already, what does that mean? Um, isn't that, well, yeah, isn't that I, basically just the, the um, you know, I'm sorry, I forget the, the term that was used again, but the global PowerPoint right up front? It, isn't the United States basically saying that it's an international security interest for Russia to not be able to change borders? Isn't that what Joe Cerencioni would say right off the bat? People, yeah, totally. People qualify all sorts of things as an international security interest, and then we're off to the races. It's true. Yeah, I mean, if this this assumes that we're having like an actual like honest debate between both sides of it, instead of one side calling everybody a Putin puppet for disagreeing with them. I mean, what does it mean though? Like, even in the best faith context, what does it mean to be part of our national security interest? Does it mean us being able to maintain a, our economic dominance on the country? Because that's kind of international security interests does it does it mean just maintaining military dominance point blank period regardless of if the rising power actually is threatening or has a substandard way of life that we don't want imposed on us like what i mean i mean the number one is is the entire discourse as we know it but there are all <laughs> of these presumptions built into it about how we should all be very very afraid of america not being number one and I think a lot of us are. And I, and I asked this to, to Marco and uh, – sorry, to, to Branko and, and Aaron as well. You know, like it feels a little Pollyanna. But, I, I, you know, to be like, um, you know, uh, do I, do I want to live in Russia? I mean, this is, this is, this is um, Joe's point. Well, look what they're doing to Brittany Griner. Would you, want, would you want to be in that situation? Well, it's like, no. Also, we've got literally millions of Britney Griners right here at home. But there can be something a little glib about that point when the left makes it. And I think we do recognize that there's varying levels and degrees of freedoms in other countries in the world. And even if it's only because you're used to home, there's anxiety that I think is legitimate about what does happen if America's not number one. What does happen if we have to start to concede, start to, concede to other life? And Oh, cutting out. Out. Sorry, Brie, you're cutting in and out. Um, not sure. Okay, uh, let me make sure I'm back on my. Oh, there we go. Coming through now. Okay. I, I just feel Sorry, like we have saying. to be serious about that concern. That people are concerned about what happens if America is no longer globally dominant, and is concerned about perhaps having less fewer freedoms than we have now if Russia or China were to be number one. And I completely take all the arguments about how we don't have freedom in America and how we have the biggest incarceration, um, pop, incarcerated population and all of those things. But sometimes I think that, I mean, that's where we get into, we're getting called tankies because we're not like addressing some, I think, legitimate concerns about what it means 
to just kind of throw yourselves at the whim of whoever becomes the most powerful in the world when we know that there are kind of relative relatively positive and negative ways of doing things, at least from our own biased cultural perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I, if we're taking it from like a Frank perspective, I think, you know, America is coming back down to earth from being the unipolar hegemon. And if, I mean, you can always couch in sustainability, which is also kind of a nebulous term, but it's, you know, America walking around the bully of the world, hitting, like knocking people upside the head, you know, based on whatever their, you know, oil companies say they should do isn't as sustainable as us coming down to the, you know, so let's back back to the Monroe doctrine and just bully the people in our hemisphere and leave other hemispheres alone and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a, from the most like Ralph Nader, Jill Stein perspective on it, like none of the interventions that we've done actually uh, threatened a vital secure, vital national security interest. We've just, we've just interwoven our corporate interests with our national security interests, but then it's, it's been that way back to Panama and Hawaii and every other Island that we own at this point. So what do you, I mean, so have you given some thought? I mean, how do you feel about the Powell Doctrine? What, what's the, what's your name? What's, what's your, what's your version? What's the Lysol Doctrine? Well, I mean, so I, (laughs) I'm going to say this on a recorded thing. I agree a lot with Osama bin Laden and his fatwa, (laughs) his fatwa against the United States. I think it read a lot like the Declaration of Independence and he's basically like, just leave us the fuck alone. You know, moderate Islam can defeat extreme Islam, but it can't defeat extreme Islam and the United States. That's a, that's a that's an argument for the United States being left alone, but that doesn't answer the question of when you think the U.S. may or may not have an obligation to intercede for humanitarian reasons in other places. No. Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I I kind of I separate humanitarian situations from military situations because it seems like the difference between sending a caseworker and sending a cop. Like there are, there are ways to fix humanitarian crises that don't involve sitting soldiers. And so I would, of course, but a lot of people are, I mean, the U S has used its economic hegemony to bully people and use aid to bully people and use the UN and all these, um, local economy disrupting aid programs to be, have coercive effects as well. Just saying we're not sending guns doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I'd love to set up a hierarchy in terms of like which, which, um, you know, which interventions need to be done first. I think we could come from a first do no harm perspective and just kind of like withdraw our support for the ones that are happening in Africa, for the one that's happening in Yemen, for the one that's happening in Palestine. Like us, us pulling troops and money out would solve several problems around the country, around the world globe. I think. Right, but I, I, I don't know. Are we? I feel like we're talking past each other. <laughs> Do you think the United States ever, you can say the answer is no, I I don't care what your answer is, but do you think the U.S. should be, you know, isolationist? Do you think that the U.S. ever should use the fact that it has more resources to intercede on behalf of other countries or groups? Yeah, I'd say isolationist with a very, very small exception for humanitarian crises where there is a sense of urgency that, you know, we can actually send a force, you know, but I'd still want to see that debated before we agreed on it versus just kind of like, you know, well, we're, we're told by, you know, uh, sources familiar with the matter say that we have a strategic interest here. So we need to do something about it. So if there were congressional hearings before our involvement in Ukraine in the kind of terms of our engagement better defined. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily be that formalized, but I feel like at least in the, in like, you know, the walk up to the Iraq war, the, the dissent was registered. 
And, you know, until Joe Biden, nobody who voted for the Iraq war had won a, a presidential election. So it had seemed like for a decent amount of time, like that was kind of a scarlet letter you couldn't come back from as a politician. It's probably the main reason why Barack Obama shot ahead of Hillary in 2008. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like is the, so the, the Powell doctrine comes from a guy, Casper Weinberger, that Powell worked for in the 80s. In the 80s, they were still building off that post-Vietnam kind of like, let's do the War Powers Act. Let's come up with the FISA Act. Like, you know, we're in that exact same position where we need to take a hard look at what we're doing and start reining in, you know, our intelligence services before they start a fucking nuclear war. And so, I, you know, that's that's kind of the tip I'm on. So it's yeah. kind of like, you know. <laughs> we're a country with a violence problem. I think the first thing is to stop doing the violence we're doing right now. Yeah. And I'm... spend the money on COVID and other things that we need to take care of in, in our country versus, you know, I mean, the absolute last thing I want my money going to is giving uh, money to Ukrainian Nazis that aren't even affiliated with the government in the sense that they're just taking the shipments and then moving them out of sight. That's like the worst case scenario for tax money, right? Yeah. It's interesting because as a, as a civilian, you're under no obligation to intercede on someone's behalf if you see that they're in danger, right? Like if you walk past a river and you see someone drowning, you're allowed legally to turn around and walk away. In every state? But if you start to save them, if you climb in and start moving toward them, you are then liable from at that point. The idea being that you've induced some degree of reliance. Maybe other observers who would have helped aren't going to help now. Um, And now you're on the hook. And I've been working through what that means about what we should have done in the first instance, perhaps nothing, and what it means now. Because, again, I also put to Aaron and Bronco, do you think we should end aid? That this is, goes beyond with the CPC letter, which was the, the context of the debate with Joe, of course. Do you think that aid should be cut off? Do you think it should be cut off at a certain point? Do you think it should be titrated down? Do we think a deadline needs to be put on it? You know, or do you think it needs to be cut off tomorrow? You know, what what are we actually saying here? What is, you know, if we all agree that the letter is milk toast, what is the left actually asking for? What is the position that we're actually taking as opposed to just having a reactionary opinion against what the establishment slash blob is doing? And then there also seemed to be a little bit of ambivalence, understandably so. I don't mean this judgmentally about either of them, but there also seems to be a little ambivalence about that question as well. See, I personally would zag. I would end the sanctions and then put the impetus on Putin, corral more international support to our side, because right now it really is the United States and Europe versus russia with china kind of on russia's side most of the global south is like fuck that shit we have we, this has nothing to do with us all you colonial people fight each other non-stop at least it's not in our backyard this time yeah and i think yeah. this you know, we get rid of the sanctions and all of a sudden it is just a military battle because the whole thing's like Zelensky can't you know unless he unless we authorize him to uh you know release the sanctions that we have on on russia he can't negotiate into this we're the party involved. We're the ones fighting them economically, which is, you know, not as flashy, but every bit as much as a part of the war, you know, what we're, mm-hmm. the, the, the hurt we're putting on Putin right now and the hurt you know, that is relatedly being put on Europe is all economic. The fighting is pretty localized. It's the, you know. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's like insane. 
It's insane to pretend that America doesn't have a say the way that Joe and so many people have been done, not just because we're giving the aid, but because so much of this is a is about our sanctions and our economic suppression of Russia at the time of the state. It, it, it is a bizarre conversation to, to be had when these people are screaming on the internet saying things like, how dare you be involved, America? <laughs> um, when but, we're what about the people who are going to freeze in Germany and England this winter? Like, yeah. Europe is going to have a fucking rough winter. There's going to be a lot of social unrest because between the inflation, you know, they're going to have rolling blackouts, perhaps. I mean, you know, you see the, the, the stuff that Putin's doing to take Kiev, like that, I, I think it was democracy now or breaking points. One of them said something today about this basically the idea that Kiev is like getting ready for the potential of having having to like mass evacuate the entire city if they get a if they get blacked out. Mm. It's the the the, mm. the, the war that, that Putin's fighting is very restrained, and I think the fact that the United States can't think from that perspective is a big mm. problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, like, well, we're like, we'll just I... blow everything up, and he's like, no, what I'm going to do is make you guys wish you weren't born. Mm. It's going to be it's going to be cold in Ukraine, and you're not going to have any power. How about that? Well, look, thank you so much for calling in, Lysol. It's always good to chat with you. For sure. Hey, are you doing any live streams tomorrow for the election? Um, I hope not. I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, keep the faith. Keep the faith, Lysol. Thank you. Um, Hussein, what is on your mind this hey, evening? Hey, buddy, Gandhi. Mzuri Sana. Oh, you speak so easy a little bit. All right. <laughs> didn't, really, <laughs> didn't care. I didn't care too much for today's episode. All Taking right. back to last Thursday on mm-hmm. Stacey Abrams' uh, hit piece, I'm gonna call it here. Mm-hmm. I didn't enjoy that either. Write her okay. name down. Her name is Nikki Haley, mm-hmm. South Carolina mm-hmm. Re- Republican. I'm familiar with her. You, oh, you're from? Okay, cool, great. I need you or you or the other, I forget the broad's name that you did the um, um, interview with that did the piece on um, Stacey. Brittany Gibson? The yeah, her. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You all find the time to go do that same type of research with her nonprofits and dark money that she's might be involved with just as much as maybe Stacey is, okay? Pass that down to her if you don't want to do it. One last I, thing. I, I, I'm, I'm confused, Hassan. Let, let's stay Hussein, with this for Hussein, a second. Hussein, sorry, Hussein, Hussein, I'm sorry. Let's stay with this for yeah. a second. Uh, this is, I'm, I'm really, really famished right now. I don't like have a lot of time. I just wanted to make two quick points. Okay, but I, I just like, want to make starving. a quick point in response to that, if I may. Which oh, okay, is, fine. Go ahead. Is it, do you think it's important or relevant to investigate whether or not Democratic politicians who are supposed to be the best hope for the left and for black communities in particular to make sure that they're not squandering money that they raise under the banner of helping the most marginalized folks in the country? Is that not as important as also being critical of uh, Nikki Haley, who I think there's a lot of reporting that's critical in the, which examines Nikki Haley? I didn't see a lot of reporting. That's my point. So that's why I need you all to do the investigative I, journalism work I, on I, her I, as well. I think that the mainstream media spends a lot of time. Now, they may not be doing a good job because they're not good, but the mainstream media <laughs> spends a lot of time picking apart what Nikki Haley says, criticizing Nikki Haley on the substance. I think there's a broad agreement that Nikki Haley is bad, unless you're a Republican and you like her because you like all the things that we don't like. Everyone understands that Nikki Haley is bad. The reason that the Stacey Abrams piece is important is because it helps people who believe and who agree with Nikki, uh, sorry, agree with 
Stacey Abrams and who think that she's doing a good job, it helps them to understand that even the people that we think are fighting for us potentially might not be. And that's something that fewer people tend to focus on. Is that a, a problem in your eyes? Um, you think that people shouldn't do those kinds of stories? I don't think, I, I just think it should be bipartisan across the political spectrum is my point here. I'm not, I'm not defending Stacey. I'm just saying, go ahead and do the other investigative journalism on the Republicans as well. Because well, wait, so if, you're, if your point is that worse. you don't think that Brittany Gibson, with all due respect, whose name you didn't even know, hasn't yeah, done critical pieces on Republicans, that's wrong. That's not. wrong. If you go and you pull up her, if you go and you pull up her author byline page on Politico, you will see that she's been covering a lot of these conservative candidates critically in the midterms as well. And we even meant, we talked about one of those races at least briefly during the show. So you cannot accuse someone like Brittany Gibson of unfairly or disproportionately focusing on a on critique Democrats. of the left. I'm sorry. On Democrats, I wouldn't say left. It's just the Democrats. or Democrats. Democrats. I meant yeah. the broad left. But yeah, I don't think that that's something that you can credibly accuse Brittany of. Now, me, I do focus on criticizing Democrats because I feel like that's where the energy needs to be because most Democrats spend all of their time focusing on Republicans instead of cleaning their own house. And I want, I want the left to be stronger and realize its flaws. And so I don't think it does anybody any, any good to pretend like their shit don't stink and just spend a lot of time hand-wringing about how Republicans are bad. We all know that Republicans are bad. Wait, that this is a universal truth that Republicans are bad. I don't think that it is. Most, I think most Americans lean Republican. Joy well, Gray. No, well, I'm talking about my audience. I'm, Your personal I don't audience. Speak, yes. I, I don't feel the need to wake up in the morning and say, "Gosh, you guys." Did you know that Republicans aren't looking out for your interests? Most of the people who listen to my show already understand that. And on Rising, where there's a more mixed audience, I frequently talk about, for example, one of my radars last week was about the Republican attack on Social Security. I tend to do one one, one that's a commentary on what's going on in the world of the broad left, and one radar that's a commentary about what Republicans are up to. Okay, I still think Nikki Haley should be investigated. Last point here. Um, right down. Are, are you a I, journalist? Am I? No, I don't. I, no, I'm not a journalist. So, is like, the, you want Brittany Gibson specifically to investigate Nikki Haley because you feel like that's the thing that needs to be done? Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. I don't know. Why? I got it. Like, all due respect, I'm not going to be passing down that message. But go ahead and say your second point. Second point. Hey, go ahead and write down I love my hair. Or somewhere on your iPad, Gracie's Corner. I love my hair. It's not for you specifically. This is for your um Chicago and gestating friend that might pop out a baby anytime. She's, she's I I we watched we watched that music that that song at her house. No, uh, you she didn't. Gracie's yes, Corner we, is like new. It's not a no, lot of people are. We did. We watched a lot of Gracie's Corner. She's this cute little black girl. Little cartoon family. There's a little Latino <laughs> boy that lives next door. They do this little. They do that little like. You a little shimmy dance in all of the videos, and all the nursery songs are kind of like crunk, and it makes you want to like back it up as you're dancing with a little two-year-old. Yeah, we definitely watched Gracie's Corner last weekend with my friend's two-year-old daughter, and it's great. But I appreciate, I appreciate the 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 tip. Okay, fair enough. I didn't, I didn't know you all were hip to this. Okay, that's that's all I have to say. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go grab a bite now. Thank you. All right, take care, Hussein. Yep, me too. All right, John, what's on your mind? Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, good. I'm What's trying it on tonight, the John? 
trying it on the call-in website from my computer and it seems to be working a little better so that's oh, good nice good news yeah yeah the website's actually pretty pretty nifty uh so i recommend some people if you have any issues hearing or the app's buggy try the website <laughs> by the way they rolled out like a beta test of video for this which i will Ooh. not be using anytime soon because <laughs> the whole beauty of Colin to me is that i can sit here looking like completely ace deuce but maybe someday we'll get it we'll get into that as well yeah no video for me either um you know i really appreciate you having the conversation with aaron and um branko uh, and it really left me kind of pondering the question you had posed to them and like forgive me if i'm paraphrasing here but it was like you know what is the metric to trigger u.s intervention to prevent atrocities like Hitler or World War II. And like that was kind of the crux, uh, crux of kind of, to me, at least what you were trying to get at, that I think is really difficult to answer. And, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about it since I watched it earlier today, and it may seem like a radical idea. And there's some cons, I'm sure, out there to it. There's some pros to it. But you know, I would argue for like a direct democracy initiative versus like a Republican form of government where we are voting or relying on people who we know are corporate captured by the war machine, uh, actually having the American people vote on interventions, you know, with the exception of like a tax directly against the United States, because obviously the president should be able to respond, you know, immediately to protect us. But you know, allowing the American people to actually directly vote on kind of these topics um, might have some benefits to it and requiring those kind of, I would say, like renewal votes annually for that, because uh, we're relying on Congress to kind of keep these things in check. And obviously they've become nothing but an old, worn down rubber stamp. I mean, they haven't even bothered to actually declare war since World War II. And we've, since then, we've been in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Yemen, all these places. So, like, what other alternatives do we have, at least here domestically, like from a constitutional legal structure perspective, to rein in our intervention? And that could be one creative way of doing it is saying, okay, you know, what do the American people want? Uh, I heard Lysol mentioning, like, um, what was it? the Powell plan, Colin Powell's plan. And the only viable piece of that I heard was saying the United States, you know, what is the temperature or the consensus of the American people? And I was just wanting to get your thoughts on that. What, what would you be your thoughts on a direct democracy type of initiative? I know it's logistically a clusterfuck. It would be very difficult because we can barely run elections that we have now, but like, we can't rely on people, Congress people, to actually represent what we feel. I mean, you know, in I'll, I'll frame it in like World War II sense, like there's a reason why we didn't get involved for so long until Pearl Harbor. Like the American public, like when Congress maybe had a, a hand on the pulse more, we did not want to get involved. We were isolationist for that reason. And I would argue great power with great power comes great responsibility and great restraint. And it seems like the only way to do that now is if they were required to ask us at the, at the booth, the polling booth. Does it make sense? <clears throat> it's all in retrospect. Of course, there was a degree mm -hmm. to which the American public wasn't aware 
of the fully aware of the atrocities that were being committed by the Nazis. But does it make sense in retrospect for us to have decided to get into a war because of bombing Pearl Harbor but not genociding six million Jewish people? And that's where it's 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 a morally tough question um, because we really only got involved because we were directly attacked. And that would be kind of one of the things I would advocate for is more if it's directly uh, a direct attack against us. But my heart also cries and weeps for knowing that we turned boats of Jewish people away while they were in concentration camps. So it's really hard to thread that needle. But I feel like I would rather trust the American people to vote on this issue directly than Congress people who are obviously corporate captured by Lockheed Martin and all these other places, uh, companies. Yeah, I'm, I'm playing it out of my head. I'm, and I'm playing I mean, I can, <laughs> I, the, the problem is that information is so suspect and contingent. So I can imagine a world yeah. where we decide we're voting. We're having a. We're voting on whether or not to get involved in World War II. Right. Most of America is rabidly anti-Semitic in the first place. Anti-Semitism yeah. went out of style because the Nazis made it uncool. You know, like let's just really be clear about the situation in the United States at the time. Charles Lindbergh and the rest of them and the Nazis are running around being real Nazis right here at home. True. And True. Hitler was citing America's treatment of its non-white people. For, as a model for how he was going to go about doing his business. So like some context, it's not clear to me that even if we knew, even if the public was more broadly aware of mm, what was going mm. on, that it would be necessarily as sympathetic as we would hope. And moreover, I can imagine us devolving into a conversation about, well, is this really genocide? And is that really happening? And what's true and what's not? The same way that we're having this conversation about is it really genocide in Ukraine? Is it really genocide with the Uyghurs? Is our Russians really evil? And on and on and on. And I, I have my true. own personal feelings about which of those things are true and which of those things aren't true. But it's not entire, I'm not entirely confident that kicking it to the public does. I mean, look, I think kicking it to the public is better ultimately than the, the status quo for sure. But it's, I'm still very concerned about the public's continuing reliance on information that's largely coming from the state department coming from true, international true. organizations <laughs> that are aligned with the blob. We don't have our own ability to go be on the ground for the most part on the front lines and, and having any real body counts, knowing who's actually winning. It's so opaque. That's part of the issue. Right, right. And we, we censor any type of foreign international media. So we can't really get the perspective of other sides. I mean, that makes sense. Like I said, it's got some pros and it's got a lot of cons. But in in my mind, I'm just saying it's got to be better than this apathetic, just nihilist system that we have now where Congress does absolutely nothing but function as a rubber stamp. Like it, the system is broken, but it's like, let's just try this. And it can be equally as broken in 100 years, but at least it's different. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I look. I hear you, and I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just, I'm just doing the thought experiment with you. It is legitimately yeah. difficult. <laughs> yeah, because that was really. 
Yeah. I think I said this at the end of my radar last week about the Joe Cerenzioni interview as I was talking to Robbie about it. That I feel like the real problem here is that it would we, we don't want it shouldn't be us. I think that there should be some kind of international humanitarian organization that has the power to intervene physically if necessary to to protect populations that are being exterminated. For instance. Well, Brie, you know, that's just going to have to be the Vulcans at this point. Okay. We're going to need to rely on them. <laughs> but, you know, like the, the as much as the UN or orgs like that were supposed to be this kind of a notion, they obviously are not that. And oh, they're just they our have, bully pulpit. I mean, look right, what they, they just voted on just, for Cuba. Like. <laughs> right. So that being the case, you know, it, it does feel like that was a worthwhile project poorly conceived and executed and part of why we keep going round and round in circles is because we're starting from the premise that america has the responsibility because america has the power and even though we don't want america to be the world's policeman when we bring up these holocaust examples we default back to that because we call have this knee-jerk reaction that someone has to do something and we're obviously the someone we're the only ones who can't potentially and so, right. the, I mean, I, the, the part of the problem that needs to be fixed, it seems to me, is the bit where we're the only ones who can. And, right. And how maybe, do you go about think, fixing that? Yeah, go ahead. Right. And I think it maybe Aaron um, maybe was kind of alluding to a structure where we have to defer to the UN Security Council, which, it, you know, maybe reworking how that mechanism works, because China and Russia will often veto us, sometimes rightfully so, and will often veto them. But maybe reworking how that works where you know say hey you get two of the two of the three or four great powers to agree you're you're okay you get the rubber stamp to go help people you know maybe something like that but it's very difficult and i was just kind of into you know having that thought experiment of you know deferring to the american people because our our politicians and our government officials are just so corporate captured they'll never actually do uh actually keep their pulse on what we want but it's interesting, and I, I just greatly appreciate you having these conversations, even though you take a lot of flack and bullshit from uh, Akita dogs or whatever they are on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and I love dogs. They're not, they're I got Shiba Inus or Akitas. I need to take a closer look. Oh, are the Akitas Shiba Inu? I don't know. They look so similar. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's some kind of, you know, uh, Japanese don't dog. Use, <laughs> dogs. Come on, people. <laughs> Yeah, it's not their fault. They're great. Actually, I hear they're kind of shitty dogs. I hear Shiba Inus have kind of shitty personalities. <laughs> oh no, they are. Uh, see, I have I have a corgi and a beagle mix, and we we are big into um. It's like I think it's no dog left behind. This dog, man actually saves dogs from the the Chinese meat industry, where they actually mm-hmm. uh, in some rural areas they still eat dogs. Uh, it's mm-hmm. illegal in China, but the rural areas still do it. He'll save them, and we almost had the opportunity, my husband and I, to. Uh, save a Shiba Inu, but we're going over like researching kind of their personality profile and their breed. Yeah, they can be a little, little touchy. They can be a little shitty and aggressive. Yeah, my brother, um, his roommate for years uh, was, a, he lived with this like young couple. They ended up having a kid and moving out, but they had one. And when this dog, it escaped at one point. And the husband was absolutely distraught. And we're dog people. Like, we love dogs. My brother was like, this is the only time I, like, honestly was on the fence about whether I wanted him to be able to find this dog again. Because <laughs> he was such a piece of work. 
<laughs> oh, they okay. are. Oh, they sorry. Are. Oh, there's no dip. There's no bad dogs. All, all dogs are good dogs. All dogs are good. All dogs are good dogs. They are. They're <laughs> much better than any of us people. <laughs> that's that's uh, indisputable. <laughs> Thanks yeah, exactly. for calling in, John. <laughs> Thanks, Bree. Bye. Bye bye. Keep the vape. Uh, Jade, unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind this evening. Hi. Um, I just was calling. I to say I really appreciated the conversations that you've been having about Ukraine, um, even with Twitter being pretty rough. <laughs> um, I guess like rough, rough, like with the dogs and all. <laughs> but, <laughs> we love a pen. But uh, so I don't have much to add. I do think like that U.S. intervention in things pretty much like is exclusively makes things worse in almost every case. Mm-hmm. But um, so that would be, you know, my thoughts on on that. But uh, I don't know if I have a question. Just wanted to say thank you for having those conversation sorry that you're being attacked like you've handled it with a lot of grace and humor which i've really appreciated and i'm sure other people do but still you know it sucks to be on the receiving end of attacks like that um so hope you're holding holding up and just keep keep doing the good work um because i know myself and a lot of us really appreciate it it's like we especially with the media and the coverage and things like we don't really get to hear this, the other perspective very often mm-hmm. about like, you know, the case for not being at war, like proxy war and not mm-hmm. engaging. So um, I think it's really beneficial that it's getting some discourse and uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I really do appreciate the support and I appreciate you calling in and I, I feel the same way about, you know, like I said to both Bronco and, and Aaron, it's such a breath of fresh air. Like, it, it, on some level, it doesn't even matter if you agree with it. It's just so nice to hear a narrative presented about what's going on that seems to draw on history and evidence and that clings together and it seems narratively coherent and it doesn't rely on you just thinking that Putin woke up one day and said, I'm the drama. <laughs> I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> um, so thank you, Jade. Yeah, sure. All right. Faith. Have a good night. Keep the faith. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, Shelly. How you doing? What's on your mind this evening? Man, I'm doing great. I just got back from the store. My cat has to go to the vet tomorrow. Nothing serious, but he's going to get Aww, a treat of okay. vanilla ice cream. So I had to go do that. <laughs> <laughs> the cat's getting vanilla ice cream mm-hmm. just just a little bit just as a treat and then i'm gonna eat the rest um <laughs> as a sacrifice for my cat and his vet appointment oh, um, wow. it sounds like a good yeah. night for you both yeah well obviously i mean you kind of know my political stance like this episode is right up my alley mm-hmm. I, you know i i knew most everything that the boys were talking about i agreed with most everything they were saying i think it was really great um, I was, I'm, I'm glad that other people on the call and also picked up on that question that you asked, because I really did think that that was the most substantive question for the left to decide is when do you get involved? And I, I think it really is difficult 
to, to decide this. I, I think you're correct in identifying the Powell doctrine whenever you just say national security interests, like that, like that's how the U S defines everything Mm -hmm. now, you know, Mm -hmm. it, Haiti's, uh, national security interests. What's Haiti going to do? What army is Haiti going to bring against Mm -hmm. the United States? Like Mm -hmm. when are they ever going to do that? When's Cuba? When all that? Okay, Mm -hmm. sure. Maybe you can make a case for Russia and China. They're larger countries. They have larger populations. They have a more established military. Mm -hmm. All right, fine. But you can just claim national security interest like we've always done and get away with whatever. And then the question with nukes is, God, and see, see, the nuclear warfare thing really does add a lot into it. Like, how is it that you would communicate those things? And that didn't even come up to be honest. What was so funny is the last time Joe was on the podcast, it was all about nukes. Like that's his bag to talk about nuclear mm-hmm. nonproliferation. And in the episode that we had, we, we could, there was no time. Like I, I kept meaning to bring it up, but then the conversation would go here and there. And we never even got around to, you know, what are the implications? Like how can you possibly think that Russia, Ukraine is going to win the war, quote unquote, are you basically saying that simultaneously you think Putin is a madman, but also if Ukraine wins militarily on the ground, that you believe that Putin won't use nuclear weapons? Like what, 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 what do you say about the fact that the president of the United States of America and, uh, you know, other, other you know, State Department figures have been talking about the risk of nuclear Armageddon and how the nuclear clock is closer to zero than it's ever been? Like how like, – where where does that fall in your cost benefit assessment here that you seem to throw it out of the window because you think that for humanitarian righteous reasons we need to fight to the last Ukrainian? Right. And also the simple fact that nuclear weapons are a deterrent. I mean, they are. Gaddafi gave up his nuclear weapons mm-hmm. and he was sodomized with a bayonet and shot on camera. Mm-hmm which then Hillary Clinton proceeded to laugh at, and now Libya has a slave market. You know what's if funny? North that... Korea... Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just, just going to say, if North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons, we would have continued our destruction of, of North Korea. Mm-hmm. That we didn't finish back in the Korean War. Mm-hmm. Like, so, so there is, like, this major contention around nuclear weapons, I think, in, in a small and scrappy country, you know, that doesn't have the same military force, then they are a deterrent and shouldn't necessarily be discouraged. And and how is it that you handle the question of nuclear weapons in larger countries? Yeah. And what do you do? I mean, this is something that the my cab driver brought up today. <clears throat> he said, you know, Ukraine had nuclear weapons and America convinced them to get rid of them. And mm-hmm. so now America has this obligation to defend it. And that is what it is. And we obviously Aaron addressed this on the podcast. And he said that Ukraine never had the capacity to launch those nuclear weapons. They weren't actually in its control. They were Soviet weapons anyway. And I don't frankly know enough about that. And actually, frankly, that would be a good conversation for Joe if he ever is willing to come back onto the podcast but I don't know, what do, you, what do you make of that argument, that it is because, you know, if you agree that nuclear weapons are a deterrent, this is basically our fault for convincing Ukraine to give up those weapons? Um, I would say, like, like what Aaron said, um, because, it, because the nuclear weapons were not developed in Ukraine itself, 
that they were positioned there by the Soviet Union. They were owned, controlled, operated, all that other type of stuff. Then that was never really in the discussion. But someplace like North, or like what, what we're trying to do with Iran, one of the reasons why everyone was kind of freaking out about Iran and like the nuclear deal and stuff like that is because the last thing that we ever wanted was Iran to have nuclear capability because that means they're untouchable. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why we, we like the United States was actually somewhat invested in that is because they're hoping maybe in 20 years they can circle back around and defeat Iran. So I don't, I think it's really, really difficult because we have um, the great power conflict that we have and we have this, this capitalist system that is seeking to to not just crush communism like really what our system does is it tries to crush anyone that tries to handle their own economy in a different way Mm -hmm. where it's you don't have to be socialist you don't have to be communist but the second that you you kind of say well i'm gonna nationalize this little bit because my people are poor you know, we'll, we'll send in a brigade. We'll, we'll send in an army because it comes down to, we want our businesses. We want our corporations in there to be able to exploit, set up our NGOs, Mm -hmm. do all the things, just economically devastate and destroy your country, which is sometimes you don't even need to drop bombs on people. We'd prefer to do it that way. This is, this is this conflict. I mean, the the part of it that I don't think gets enough airplay. And I think I learned this from Aaron or I think in, in the earlier episode it's the it's the 2014 battle over whether or not Ukraine's going to go east or west being offered up the you know kind of EU austerity package which was less popular apparently by some margin to the people than the idea of the Russian approach and strengthening ties they I'm like overly simplifying oversimplifying it obviously because I'm yeah, not an expert. but like and and the the Maidan coup being popped off at our instigation in part because they were going to choose there seemed to be it seemed to be that they were going to choose Russia you know so the the idea you know the the economic manipulation the wanting to impose this austerity all of that is literally all of the things that we know that we do are literally converging on this very crisis and in fact I need to follow up and there's a there's a guest I actually want to have on to talk about exactly that because I do think this is an under Clara, Clara Matei exactly I think I, I... Yes. And I thank God for your listener for suggesting her. It's like, I try not to say, Hey, like, Hey, Brie, here are 10 people you can suggest. And she was like fourth on my list the last time. So I'm glad someone else got her. No, yeah. She seems ideal for this. I have an email drafted. I just uh, had to leave for the weekend before I could finish it, but for sure, I hope to get her on soon. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I do think that, you know, sometimes we can get like overly vexed and overly like kind of interested in, you know, whenever we see bombs dropping, because that becomes a lot more real to us, you know, whenever we can see kind of the devastation happening in real time. But really, if you look at the definition or, or what the traditional definition of imperialism is, the traditional definition of imperialism is not military boots on the ground. It is financial global hegemony. Yeah. That's actually what it is. Do you export capital? Do you do that? I mean, there are a bunch of different things that go into it. And that's what makes you an imperialist country. Not always just boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the biggest part about it is the ability to use monopolistic foundations, organizations, all these other types of things to subdue countries and basically put them under blackmail in order to walk in lockstep with you 
And then if you resist a little bit more, then we'll send boots in on the ground. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's difficult. And, and I really don't know how I would have to say probably the only condition that I would say, yes, we should support a group of people um, in a war effort would be a war for self-liberation. Um, which I think like Cuba did with Angola mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The problem is, is then the, then the West gets in there with all their propaganda and then they start making the bad guy look like the good guy. Yeah. I mean, and so I, then we get it all- yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's tricky. I don't know. I, 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 I ask about like what the litmus test should be because I'm genuinely confused and yeah. I don't know. I'm genuinely very ambivalent about it because even like, what does it mean? A war for self-liberation in hindsight, there are a lot of things and especially coming out of like a colonial era, you know, Mm -hmm. some African country trying to kick out its European colonizers seems like a very clear cut case. But these days, (sighs) I mean, I remember the backlash I got when I just tried to do an episode on Tigre and how nobody wanted to come on because people are very divided about who the bad guy is and it's very, it was very difficult which, for me. I'm sorry? No, I, which is such a shame. I mean, yeah. obviously it's the TPL. Or the yeah, TPL. I mean, <laughs> look, but, but people, people are, are afraid to even say it, even if they believe it, because anybody who has a family, and I, I was being told this, anybody who has family back home feels like they are genuinely under threat if they are caught saying negative disparaging things on Western media. So it was, it was legitimately difficult to find a guest. I had hoped to have a panel. I got one woman from Amnesty International. She was on P's and Q's because she came from a much more left leftist background, but had to like toe the Amnesty line a little bit while we were talking and everyone ended up just being upset. And I was like, fine, I won't do the episodes. On the show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, but I do think that ultimately this is one of the most important questions that came from all of this, like mm-hmm. outside just the Ukraine stuff and, and this, you know, Mr. Cicerone, you know, he, he reacted in a bad way. And I, I, I do think that he kind of realized that, oh shit, like he just unleashed some crap on you. And cause I haven't really seen him go anything direct. So regardless of whether or not he was out of bounds, all that stuff is interesting and informative and what, and whatever. But I think that ultimately the biggest philosophical question out of all of it is the one that you just asked. Is it how is it that we determine the justness of whatever movement? And I don't think it's going to be answered tonight. And I don't think it's going to be answered next month. But I do think it's something that we all kind of have a responsibility to like philosophically kind of like think about. Yeah. Think about what it is that we want a world to look like. Yeah. And because and it, and it also, I think, clarifies, it, it, it forces people to, who think that they have a slam dunk case for why we're intervening now. I mean, it's, look, it's a lot easier to argue in the negative. So in some ways, Joe was, you know, Joe was at a disadvantage because I'm not actually trying to prove anything. I'm, he's the one that's affirmatively wanting something, so he's the one that has to justify his cause. But, you yeah. know, I think asking these kind of questions at the very least makes it more clear that people who are having questions about this war aren't doing it necessarily from a perspective of, I just don't care about Ukrainians, I'm Putin's pep with all of this stuff. When you put it on the people who are advocating for intervention to explain why this one, not I'm not defensively saying why I, I disagree with this one, but you tell me why this one. You're the one who wants it, so why this one? 
then because then I think it really uh, clarifies uh, uh, the uh, global hegemony. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, that's, that's always what it comes down to because this one's the most important. Oh, and also I'm going to let you go, but um, I just want, I have like an idea for you for a radar. Like, obviously you need to do like some research and whatnot to like narrow it down. Cause I think it would piss a lot of people off, but I hear like a lot of people talking about like, oh my God, the great reset and America is trying to institute a social credit system. That's just like China's. And then I'm thinking about like, well, what about a radar about like how we already have a social credit score? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You I know, that like would be, that would do well. I, I think it would too. I mean, and you could say, you know, like people talk about like, oh, this cancel culture. I can't believe it. Blah, blah, blah. That's a social credit score. Mm-hmm. You put an opinion out on an app and it got ratioed. That's a social credit score. Um, you know, just our, our credit score, just in general, that means you can't buy a home, you can't buy a car, you can't rent an apartment. Um, I would even say California's three strikes law is a social credit score. Mm. I mean, there are tons of different comparisons that you can make to basically say, like, why are you worried about something you already have? Mm. Mm. I think I it like might that. make an interesting start. Yeah, I like that, Shelly. Thank you for the suggestion. I'm always looking for yeah. radar suggestions because let me tell you. They stress me out. <laughs> yeah, now obviously you're going to get a whole lot of pushback on that one. So, <laughs> you know, I would source some source some examples and shore it up because people are going to lose it on you. If, you. if you know of anybody who's basically kind of written it up, sometimes the easiest thing is to find someone who's written a pretty good article and just kind of cite that yeah, and embellish I, upon I it. I can't think of it anything because most of the spaces that I look at, they're like basically trying to say like the social credit score isn't what you think it is. Mm-hmm. And that's normally what I see instead of basically people saying like, well, how, how is this different? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, you got some rewards for buying Subway 10 times on a punch card. It's, it's kind of, the, you know, there, there are a lot of things that are, that are worked into it. You know, yeah. there are a lot of ways that we re- that we reward correct behavior and that we try to like make people do the correct thing socially in a very mm-hmm. controlled manner that people really lose sight of. Yeah, for sure. Well, I've taken right. my Thank notes so in the Slack. Thank you, Shelly. It's always a delight to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Keep the faith. Uh, Pierre. Pierre, I think you were one of the ones that got left right at the end in the last episode, weren't you? Huh? Oh, no. Can you hear me? Yeah, Sorry. I can hear you. Okay. No, I, I didn't have my phone. Like, I muted it some reason and so I went and I disappeared on it so yeah to skip me so okay, uh, well, thanks for taking my call I'm glad we connected tonight what's on your mind yeah for sure um first I just wanted to see I, I figured you had some sway with the higher-ups on the app so I figured I, I'd mention that like on recordings mm-hmm. um the there would be like there will be like some overlap in voices and so it'll like have a big gap of silence and then all of a sudden the caller and the host will start talking over each other. And I don't think that's what's going on. So hmm. I think there's something weird with the app. So I don't know if you had any. Okay. <laughs> well, Charlie, know. I see Charlie from Colin is in the chat. So Charlie complaint registered. Okay. I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there, but let's yeah. register that okay. concern. Okay. Thanks. Pierre. Thank you. Um, so the thing I, I just wanted to bring up a point, I think that, it's totally okay, obviously, to talk to people like Darren Mate, and I don't think you should be getting flack for that. I totally think that's not cool and not in good faith. 
the issue I have with Aaron's analysis, and I think this goes for Glenn Greenwald and Max Blumenthal, is I think they primarily identify themselves as journalists. However, mm -hmm. when people will converse with them online or uh, whatever, like they'll bring up like, oh, what about Russia's actions? Or what about Assad's actions? Or um, what about Putin? Or like censorship in Russia? And then they'll come back and they'll say, well, I'm an American citizen. Therefore, I'm focused on American policy. Mm -hmm. um, and I totally get that from an activist perspective, but if you're a journalist and you're doing that, taking that approach, that can potentially lead to an analysis that is faulty, or at least you might come to a different conclusion if you were putting on your journalist cap. I'm not saying that you would definitely come to a different conclusion, but I think by taking that approach, I don't think that that's, um, I don't think that that's a correct way of looking at it. either you do one or the other. I think you you can be an activist journalist, but I think if you're, like I said, primarily to the exclusion of actors on the international stage other than the U.S., I think that's not the role of a journalist uh, primarily. And I think it does lead you to take certain approaches that you wouldn't normally take. So. Like, I feel like they kind of take Russia's statements at face value in ways that they wouldn't take America's, you know, government, American government statement at face value. And so, like, when they bring up the prospect of nuclear war and saying, oh, we shouldn't aid them because of nuclear war, um, then um, they will often point to the government statements. Um and saying, you know, we, we want to do tactical nukes. Now, I, I understand there's plenty of reasons to, to say maybe we shouldn't aid them or, or put conditions on it. But if, you, if you're going to take their statements at face value, then like I think like a couple weeks ago or last week, they put out a statement saying we're not going to use nuclear weapons. And I didn't hear them change their you know, calculation based on that. So I think they, they use, they take the statements of foreign leaders at face value when it's convenient for what they're trying to argue. And I think it leads sometimes to faulty conclusions. Here, Not if, necessarily, if, but maybe. Here, if Russia says it is not going to use nuclear weapons, and Aaron and Co. are saying that it, we shouldn't be involved because it still risks nuclear war, isn't that not taking Russia's Russia at its word? At his word? Well, they'll they'll cite it. They'll say, oh, they'll point to it. They'll say Russia's saying this. Therefore, I mean, they'll use that as evidence. Evidence um, of what? Evidence that 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 they should, like, as an argument for like not providing defensive aid, military aid to Ukraine. So if you're going to use that as but, evidence, but I, I'm confused because isn't the argument that because of the risk of nuclear war, that we sh that is why we shouldn't. That is one of the reasons why we shouldn't be involved. Right, but if they're and using, so if they're if, saying if they're saying that they're taking that off the table, if Russia's saying that they're taking that off the table, isn't are isn't wouldn't then Aaron's argument continued argument that nuclear war is too great a risk? Be well, not in if, contravention of Putin's statement. Not well, but you know what I'm saying. Well, no, but, well, yeah, I, I see. I I totally understand that. Like, you could still be skeptical, but I'm just saying they use 
the Russian government's statements that they would use it as evidence at, to promote their argument. So you can't use that as your argument um, in one direction, but then ignore it when it goes in the other direction. So if, well, if guess, they were to say, like, mean, you know, I guess what I'd like to know is if there was a specific, like, so there was, I know, I remember there was one moment we were talking where I asked Aaron about something and he explained it and I, and I kind of wanted to, to push back, but you know, we were already going long and it felt like maybe I was being overly pedantic, but I, I do think obviously there are times, there are times when one can easily interrogate whatever they're bit of information is coming down the pike for its authenticity and whether or not it is we're being overly credulous as something that is potentially sympathetic. Maybe that's that's not the right word, but, you know, gives more credibility to Russia's position here. Mm -hmm. But in my experience, even though I don't think any of us are above making those kinds of mistakes or having our own biases slip out, the reason in my experience with Aaron and Max is that when you push back and interrogate whether or not they're being overly credulous, I'll just stick with Aaron because I've spoken to him more, he tends to be like, yeah, sh- of course, it might not be true. Take it with a grain of salt. Uh-huh. Whereas in my experience with talking to folks like Joe, if I interrogate Biden's, you know, whether or not he's really in this humani- for, humani- for humanitarian reasons or whether or not he – uh, there is, in fact, a blank check or all of these statements that have been made about how um, they'll fund it to the last Ukrainian or that it's about weakening Putin. Joe, I don't want to be uncharitable to Joe. There were plenty of reasonable concessions that he made. I think it was a very reasonable conversation, despite how he behaved on the Internet the next day. Mm-hmm. But he tended to, I think, not have not allow mm-hmm. the more – skeptical interpretation of the state department line. And so I'm not going to sit here and say that there aren't, you know, people don't have their biases, but my impression, why I find there to be so much more credibility coming from, let's say Aaron is because in my experience, when I do push back, he is not defensive and he will say, you know, he says very easily and quickly, it was an illegal invasion and Putin violated international law to invade. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know, I don't get that same energy from the mainstream media, Joe Serencioni kind of view of things. Does, but, does, I mean, how do you feel about yeah. that? Well, I think that, I think, I know that you've mentioned that you're, well, I don't want to mischaracterize or misquote you, but you said you're, oh, you're, you don't have a position of some sort. I think at one point I thought you mentioned that, but maybe mm-hmm. not, but I don't, from what I've observed, I think you are more sympathetic to not providing military aid. I, I could be wrong, but, you know, like, I think you said that providing military aid would be military, would be adventure, military adventure. I mean, that's not necessarily calling balls and strikes. That's having a position. And so I think maybe the energy goes in the other direction, too, where Joe senses a little bit more antagonism. So my conversation with Joe was about the CPC letter, which is not the letter I would have written, but it was a letter that did not advocate for withdrawing any aid. So to the extent that any conversations being had about withdrawing aid, that's Joe kind of interjecting into the conversation and putting that on me. Now, if you want to ask me what I feel, 
I can tell you kind of what my instincts are. I mean, my instincts are largely rooted in, rooted in ignorance, but I can tell you what my instincts are. But it's kind of irrelevant because this is a pod, you know, that was a podcast episode about a CPC letter that only asked for the bare minimum. It just said, hey, negotiations, maybe sometime, maybe sometime. <laughs> and yeah. it got all the blowback that it got. So I'm not, I'm not saying that I, I am personally neutral, but I, I, I do think that the letter was pretty neutral. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, and I'm not, I'm not, it's not that I'm, I'm not trying to like be cowardly about it, but it's a big deal to say something like I'm going to withdraw aid in the middle of a crisis. This is what was going on in Afghanistan, right? Once we mm-hmm. stick our nose in it, suddenly there's this whole question about whether or not people have a reliance interest on us. And this is my analogy earlier about your legal, legal obligation to finish saving someone if you start saving someone, but not your obligation to start saving them in the first place. Now that we're in it, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe we mm-hmm. have induced reliance in a way that it's it's unethical to completely cut things off now. Maybe yeah. it has to be titrated down over a period of time. You know, maybe I don't I don't know. I'm nobody's military expert. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to be very clear that I'm not some technical expert here that's weighing in in any meaningful way. Yeah, I mean, I think the letter was tamed too. I think some people are kind of in, going interchangeable between conditioning aid and, and arguing for no aid. I feel like people are kind of going back and forth depending on who they're arguing with. And I don't know. I feel like they're conflating it. And those are two very distinct positions to take, but I feel like, like with Aaron, um, they'll kind of take the absolutist position, but then when they're arguing. So for example, like, you know, you're saying, well, the, the letter, you know, it's hard, not conditional. But then when you talk about those protesters at AOC, at the AOC thing, I don't think they want to condition the aid. I don't think, I just think they don't want a period. So I think those are way, those are very distinct scenarios. Um, I also, I don't know if, the other thing I wanted, the last, the other point, the last point I'll, I'll, I'll sign off is, if I can, um, is if, if, they're, if it's not about taking Putin's statement at face value, and it's about assessing whether nuclear war escalates um, due to the prolonged conflict, do they have any... Here? Sorry, can you hear me? Sorry, you said do do they have any, and then you cut off for me. Sorry, there was I I got an incoming call. Um, okay. Do they have any evidence that that it would go in that direction, and it wouldn't go like, for example, if you cut off aid, and Russia was allowed to basically occupy Ukraine, which mm-hmm. I think is I don't think they would come to some negotiated settlement if Ukraine didn't have the capability to fight back. I just they seem to think that Russia will come to the table if Ukraine can't fight back, and I don't see why that would be the case. But let, let's say they they were given free a free hand in Ukraine. What evidence do they have that that would be less of a nuclear rather than more? I mean, then they could threaten. I'm not saying that that's necessarily the the, the case, but what evidence do they have that it it goes in that direction and not in the the heightened risk if they are allowed to threaten? nuclear war and then we're we back off and then um that allows them to kind of that gives them you know the international arena it shows that threatening nuclear war allows you to take over other countries so 
I know that the narrative is that Putin wants to take over Europe, it wants to conquer Ukraine, that it wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, that Union is a madman mad with an, a deeply held ancestral belief that all of the Balkans should be his again or whatever. <laughs> but, and I don't speak Russian, but people who do have said that that interpretation of what he says in his speech is inaccurate. And the evidence that we have, I think Bronco was talking about this in the podcast, is from one of those early, he, he walked through like these three different um, points at which there were deals on the table that the West encouraged Ukraine to back away from. But that what Russia wanted was to go back to the pre-war, you know, pre-February borders. Excuse me. Sorry, I have a sneeze coming out. <laughs> go back to the pre-2014 borders. And further to be an actual assurance that, you know, Ukraine wouldn't join NATO. And I think there was something else about maybe the autonomous regions having some, you know, protection in the yeah. context of the Civil War. Basically, the Minsk Accords. <laughs> right. You know, that that's what everybody wants. I mean, that's what, like, that Russia says, has said repeatedly that that's all it wants. So it wants to continue to be able to ship its gas through Ukraine to the rest of Europe, make its money, get its little grain, have its have its you know strategic whatever there in the area, yeah. But not have it. It doesn't actually want the responsibility of controlling that region. It's poor. But, it's corrupt. It doesn't especially want that smoke. And so that being that that for me, and I'm happy to hear people who have facts and figures to dispute that. But that to me seems like evidence that. Russia does not have these grand ambitions that everybody is using to gin up our involvement. Yeah, I don't think he, yeah, I don't think he wants to take over Europe, but you don't think that if he had, if there was no, if Ukraine didn't put up a fight that he would want to occupy all of Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine's a sovereign country. I mean, yeah, there's spheres of influence, but I mean, like Ukraine is a sovereign country, no matter how much like aid they get, that's, that doesn't mean they're not sovereign. Um, the other thing I thought was, I thought at the beginning of the war, Zelensky offered to, uh, vow to not be in NATO. And then they, you know, Russia ignored that. The other thing I thought. No, they was, just, they, oh. like early in the conflict, they like formally issued their application or some shit. They've been instigating this thing the whole, they've been teasing NATO the entire time. Even though the, even though apparently there's like zero chance they're going to be let in, yeah. they've still been just thumbing their nose about it. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, the other thing, Aaron did admit that he got the invasion wrong. So he did, he, and I, I honestly find those kinds of admissions to make him incredibly credible. And right. to be so honest, saying, Joe, Joe did make. I was rewatching the the stream today. You know, as we were airing the full version live, I was watching some of the the ta- the, the you know live chat while I was on the runway, and I I was remembering that like yeah, even Joe made some some reasonable concessions about the history of American imperialism and stuff that lent him some credibility as well. But then at the end of the day, he said, this war is different. This war is different. And when pressed on why, why given that he's conceded all of these other moments of American interventionism, he, in my humble opinion, gave um, insufficient uh, explanations. Yeah. So I, I don't think you're calling in. So okay. go ahead. All right. Well, I I just don't think by definition, if it's in our strategic interest, that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. I mean, I know World War II is a hackneyed comparison, but it it just so happened that defeating Hitler was a good thing, 
even though United States interests were, it was more foremost to, you know, defend Britain and France. Um, and, well, you know, what, what, do you, what do you make, Pierre, of the, what is it, 14,000 people or so uh, that have been killed in the Russian-occupied regions in the context of the Civil War and all of the humanitarian crimes against those people prior to U.S. involvement? Should the U.S. have intervened on behalf of the Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine? Wait, so they were separatists? I don't, they, I don't know if I would use that word, but... Well, they were... Well, Ukraine was at war with... That was their territory, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there's civilian... Yeah, civilian... Yeah, should we have plot. intervened? Are you saying that you only think we should intervene when there's a literal invasion? We shouldn't have... We shouldn't have... It's not a, a deep regret that we didn't intervene uh, in the well, Rwandan genocide or in the Congo I mean, if, or... Well, sorry, I do think ahead. invading... Sorry, I, I was just saying I do... Well, if we're talking about the level, we're obviously giving more aid to Ukraine now than um, pre-full um, invasion. But that was we were, in, you know, shipping arms to Ukraine during the or during the um, the Donbass war, right? So, I mean, that was the same level of involvement. In, in- yeah, to the bad. I mean, like, sorry, but like, arguably, to the bad side. Like this, to- this is what this is what people are saying. What's that the bad side? The, the side that is persecuting the ethnic Russians in the East. The side but, that is rallying behind Banderas and doing all of the Nazism and take stripping Russian as a national language and doing things that marginalize the ethnic Russians. So and, the right side is the Russians trying to take over that Eastern province? No, they're Ukrainians. <laughs> they were Ukrainians Ukra- in, in... But it was Ukrainian territory, right? The Donbass is Ukrainian sovereign land. This this is the thing. There is no objective reality here. When America won the Revolutionary War, therefore we say the Revolutionary War was good. The the South lost the Civil War, so we say the South was bad. I mean, I have obviously other reasons for thinking the South is bad. But, like, this is not – there are all – it's a separatist movement until they win, and then it's an independence movement, and they're wonderful freedom fighters. It's 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 all wordplay. I don't know what's happening there. I don't know that borders are a good idea at all. I think it's all kind of ridiculous. Yeah, that's a whole different. Yeah, you know, I but mean, but like, it's, were, it, who am I supposed to be rooting for again? Exactly, I'm supposed to be deeply invested in this bit of land being called Russia versus Ukraine. It's not entirely clear to me how invested the people in in the Donbass are in it being called one thing or another, as opposed to putting peace safety, et cetera, as a priority after being yeah. shelled for the last eight years. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, again, I'm like way in over my head. That's why I'm really reluctant to get into the okay. details of this. But the, the, print, the, the fundamental point here is that so much of this is about framing and, and ad hoc rationalization about who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in these scenarios. It's people who have a dispute. People have ethnic disputes. People have border disputes. People have cultural disputes religious disputes, etc., And those are capitalized on by people who want power and control. And the same is true here. Russia wants Ukraine to be allied with it and its economic interests. The West wants Ukraine to be allied with it and its economic interests. And they're legitimately being people in Ukraine who have ethnic ties to Russia can be exploited at the same time that there is a sincere interest in having those ties and, mm-hmm. and vice versa. And it's not... Be- Frankly, our collective ignorance here 
is I think a pretty strong reason for us not to be involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, I think that's a separate, I mean, for me, that's a separate issue. I think in, on principle, I think if you're, there's gotta be a high bar to meet to want to, to be legitimately trying to annex territory from another country. I think that's gotta be a high bar. And I don't think Russia's met that bar. Right. But the, but the argument is that through various instigations, the sending of weapons, the threats to expand NATO, et cetera, that we are, we are, we, they, we did the reverse Cuban Missile Crisis. This is Bronco's point, and this is his article which people should read. That if they did this to us, we don't have to say if. When, they, when Russia literally did, when the Soviet Union put its missiles in Cuba, we threw a conniption fit and almost started World War III. Mm-hmm. And we see absolutely no parallels into what we're doing with NATO expansion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, NATO expansion um, definitely throws a wrench. I just think that that's a, but that doesn't, I, I don't know, I, for me, that doesn't really justify Russia trying to viewing Ukraine as like not a sovereign country. And I think that's what it's doing when it, yeah, the, when it invades I, parts, when it, yeah. Yeah, I don't, is, is Cuba not a sovereign country? It is us willing to go to battle. Yeah. Cuba, Cuba is a sovereign country. Isn't it allowed to have Russian uh, Soviet warheads there if it wants to? Who's to say it can't do that? It's a sovereign oh, I, country. Yeah. Well, that's until why we decide think... it's not. Do you know what I mean? It's the exact same thing. So but, I, I'm but not. Spheres of influence I... by the United States is just as bad as spheres of influence by Russia. I think both right. are wrong. Okay. Yeah. But here's this is this is what it is. So I can't. I'm not going to swallow. We got to get involved here because Putin is evil and all that shit. It's not because Putin's evil. If Putin's evil, America's evil. It's okay. because they we we do fears of influence and we do this kind of um, jockeying. I just think and so that, that's like, what this yeah. is. So let's just say what this is. And America decided to poke the bear, and now here we are. I mean, like that's a sound. That's a clip that's going to get me into trouble. And then they'll say, but like someone will bring up to Aaron, well, what about? is it legitimate for the United States to invade Mexico? And they'll use that as a comparison point. He said, well, strategically, that makes sense. And I feel like, I, I think I've talked to him and he's, he said something, I don't want to misquote him, but you know, just a summary of, of his argument was like from a realist perspective. I'm like, well, I mean, okay, but that's not necessarily- We did, we went to war, we took bits, it was huge chunks of Mexico. This is not like yeah, a hypothetical situation. Right? <laughs> but that's not right. No, it's, it's not, not right. right. But should the rest of the world come fight, uh, go come join up with Mexico and do uh, threaten us with nuclear war? Hey, maybe. <laughs> but the the reason that the the people the issue people have is treating Russia like it's an anomaly, and that it is a righteous moral battle when the, it's doing what big stupid fucking countries do, just like ours. And that's what the saying is what it's right. And I, and I got to kick you off because you know very well, Aaron has said over and over again that the invasion was wrong. But it's like blood from a stone from people. What do you want him to do? You want him to say Putin is evil and a madman and all this shit. No, because that, not, that's not just like a, an empty statement. That's, a, that's an acceptance of a, of a view of global politics that rests not on history, not on facts, not on strategy, and not on what actually motivates people, but on this weird view that random human beings are just waking up in the morning and saying, I'm the problem, it's me. It's unrealistic. 
and, and it's it's not false equivalences. It's not both sidesism. It's desperately trying to get people to look at what the actual geopolitical motivators are of a situation, so that we can unwind and stop them. Mm-hmm. Instead yeah. of saying Putin is just a monster, Putin is evil, because we have a million and one examples of America doing the same thing, and you don't think it's justified for the rest of the world to rally up and start nuking America because of all the dumb shit it's done. Maybe it is right. But they don't have that power. We're the one that has that power. And that's why we have the responsibility to do what we can to rein in our own megalomaniacal government. Okay. You know? All right. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you for calling me. No worries. Thank you for calling in, Pierre. Keep the faith. All right. I want to wrap it, too, because i got to wash my hair and I'm exhausted. So let's try to get through some some folks. Ooh, it's a long queue. (sighs) Okay, Brad, what's in your mind? Are you here with us, Brad? Can you unmute yourself? Brad, are you able to unmute yourself? All right, Brad, I'm going to go ahead to the next. Raya, what's on your mind? B? Yeah, I can hear you. What's on your mind tonight? Um, I wanted to talk about this question of when intervention may or may not be justifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, prior to going into like what I personally think, but I would propose that a potential yardstick that is debatable could be um, what are called the five precautionary principles or criteria of legitimacy that are associated with the responsibility to protect, which is an international, I think it's a soft law, but essentially that came out of Rwanda and various atrocities like that. And Mm -hmm. the five precautionary principles are that military force is only justified um, when the seriousness of harm is clear and extreme enough to justify military force the central purpose of the intervention must be to prevent or halt suffering. Military force must be the last resort with every reasonable non-military option explored, that it is proportional to the ends sought, and that the balance of consequences is that there is a reasonable chance of success. And I, I don't know if I find these principles compelling enough even to justify intervention, but they are something that could potentially be that yardstick of legitimacy in theory. So what's so interesting, one of the most interesting parts of this debate for me is the fact that kind of pro-Ukraine funding, these are oversimplified titles, obviously, but Let's call it like the pro-fund Ukraine crowd um, perceives funding as helping to end the war faster and save lives, I guess, extensively. They see that as the humanitarian intervention. And many on the other side, given the reality of not being able to overcome Russia militarily, see giving aid as prolonging the war and causing more death and suffering. So if, if people were to be presented with the question of 
what in suffering or, or however you put that first principle, which on its face sounds good and like we could all agree on what that means, I think immediately you're going to have folks that say, if you withdraw aid, if you use non-military aid if you or in military aid and try to reach a negotiated settlement, the fact of you trying to negotiate with Russia means that you are willing to, what? how did Joe put it, create an off-ramp for Putin in a way that necessarily in their eyes disadvantages the people of Ukraine. And what you get, what becomes very clear is that they believe that like, if I, like, I feel like some, some of these people, if I told them, I'm making up numbers now, but if I told them, you know, 20 million people live in the occupied regions, and if we fight for five years, Ukraine can re- maintain its borders, but half of those people will be dead, versus if you gave into whatever the Russian demands were, which might include g- keeping some of that territory, but all 20 million people survive and 10 million people don't die, that that's a bad outcome. Now, me sitting here, little old me, I don't know nothing about anything. I have a hard time prioritizing a borderline over 10 million dead people. And I understand that might be deeply naive and overly simplistic. I don't, and I, and it, but, but fundamentally, it feels to me like these national political interests of do I get this river? Do I get this power plant? Do I get access to this port? are being very almost explicitly gambled in exchange for who knows how many lives in a way that I find to be repugnant. And so I, well, I guess what I'm saying is it's not clear to me that a, a, a principle, as, as good as it sounds, that a principle like cause the least harm, have humanitarian resolution, you know, et cetera, Will even can even be agreed upon because one side is basically saying to concede territory is to do something that's not humanitarian because it helps Putin, and the other side is saying like even if you lose some geopolitical battle, saving human lives is the humanitarian priority. I mean, what do you make of that? Mm-hmm. Well, I agree with that, and that's why I think like we as leftists need to be um from our humanist principles from this idea that um it should be to save the greatest number of lives and reduce the amount of suffering that we as leftists need to be firmly in the camp of um supporting sovereignty of states and that includes not interfering and intervening in countries that are not our own militarily because i i mean it's the same thing with the off-ramp for putin is that argument is so facile because it is essentially arguing that you cannot let one person no matter how evil so-called they are you cannot let one person get away with these crimes when it is resulting in the deaths of how many other people like it, it's beyond even that equation of oh you get this amount of territory and this number of lives versus this amount of territory and this number of lives like mm-hmm. the arguments that you can't have an alt ramp for putin as one individual mm-hmm. is nonsensical yeah <laughs> i agree <laughs> especially when i think and again i had to defer to aaron and other people who know better 
in a Bronco, but the, especially since the compromise doesn't even seem to be, or at least at a certain point wasn't, that they actually wanted, I mean, you know, I think, um, um, yeah, that, that, it, that they even wanted that, the, the, the territory. You know, there was an agreement that they would return the, to the, the borders, the, you know, the pre-February borders. And so it, it wasn't even about, that wasn't even the exchange. But that, the idea that Putin would be even, like, as quote-unquote reasonable as that is completely outside of the discourse that we're getting in the West. And, and look, maybe it's not true. Maybe that's just a Putin talking point to make himself look good and ultimately he has a thirst for blood and wants, just desperately for some reason, wants to be in charge of Ukraine. Yeah. Well, but, and... yeah. Go ahead. I, I think that's why, like, we as the left should be doubling down on because we are in this conflict, because we have given aid, that we are obviously have our interests at play. We are involved now. That continued and I would argue sh- gradually shrinking military aid should be conditional on Ukraine engaging in negotiations because we're already there. We're already committed. We've already given these resources and weapons we're already in practice involved in this conflict so i think as a left like not only should we be saying this letter is the bare minimum but we should be doubling down on making the aid explicitly conditional on negotiations to aim towards the fastest resolution of this conflict in order to save the greatest number of lives because especially with people in these in the donbass region not caring whether it's russia or ukraine I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm assuming that their priority is surviving and having their families survive, whether it is under Russia or Ukraine. Yeah, I, I, I can't speak for anybody, but I promise you right now that if there were, there was fighting and I was displaced and, and it was like, okay, all over whether or not I'm now a Mexican citizen, sign me up, give me some Duolingo on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like, I don't care. Like, I don't care. Like, I, 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 and I mean, I obviously I'm being kind of glib. Um, but it just, it, when, I, I don't understand how you can simultaneously be talking about the horrors of what people are having to live through. Accurately, by the way. And then behaving in a way that prolongs the conflict indefinitely. Because, again, this isn't a world where Ukraine is fighting against Estonia. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck. I'm just pulling out countries. Mm. It's, it's Ukraine fighting against Russia, a nuclear power. And it's just, it's not, like, I'm not the one saying this. I, you know, what, who did I quote in the episode? Um, it was uh, Sachs, Jeffrey Sachs, John Mearsheimer. Everybody who asks, who knows these things, will say, Ukraine is not going to defeat Russia in any traditional way. It's not, it's, that is not how this is going to win. So I completely understand wanting to bring Russia to the negotiating table at the point at which Ukraine is winning and it's made it difficult for Russia so that Russia is more willing to concede on better terms. But that is what I asked Joe about. Everyone was complaining that the, the, the Russia was, the, sorry, that the letter was supposed to have come out months ago and they say well the timing is bad now 
But I'm like, you're saying that the that Ukrainians are doing better now than they were doing months ago. So doesn't this make it more, a more advantageous time for the letter to come out? I don't understand. What is the problem? Mm-hmm. Well, and yeah, go ahead. Is, like, I think for whether we're making this argument to liberals or those who mean well, mm. but it's like realistically the deaths and the atrocities and the war crimes and all of these things that have happened have already happened and you can't go back and change that. So if we're going from like a very utilitarian standpoint, do we not want to prevent the greatest number of future atrocities from happening? Like we, if the, if the conflict continues and we're trying to get it, so Russia is on a weaker standpoint or any of these things up until we get to that point, more and more people are going to be dying. Further atrocities are going to be committed. So how can the argument be made against wanting to end the greatest number of atrocities? Because you have to get to the point where you're at a ceasefire, where you're at the negotiating table, where the conflict is over, to even begin assessing criminal responsibility for war crimes and atrocities and all of these things. Like It's not possible to do that in the period of conflict. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, their argument, what they say, you know, to steel man it, is that once you basically allow that any nuclear power gets to do what they want, it's a dangerous world. And I would argue that we've been living in that world mm-hmm. for like 70 years. We're already there. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to how we are able to do everything that we do as well. So <laughs> it sucks. You know, talk to Oppenheimer about it. But like, <laughs> this is where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, thank you as always for calling in, Maya. I, that was a very useful um, thought experiment, I think. Can I plug one more thing just really quickly? Yeah, of course. Um, totally unrelated. Um, there was a um, Greenpeace action in the Netherlands of a bunch of cyclists who were blocking the planes of the ultra wealthy. So mm. if that episode you've been talking about, about further tactics and discussing which type of tactics for the climate crisis are effective that was just another example i think that could be an interest con interesting contrast to the paintings but anyways thank you so much as always did, keep the wait faith. a minute did you see oh. much coverage of that where did this happen this was in the netherlands um it mm. was greenpeace just up oil extinction rebellion have all been talking about it peter kalmus was talking about it um i don't okay, cool, i babe. didn't see anything in the mainstream this was mostly this is, just from twitter this is, this is what i'm saying ryan like they <laughs> They're mad about the painting, but the painting's got the press. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. You got it. Sometimes if they're gonna force you to do something that kind of makes you look an asshole, <laughs> but they mm-hmm. cover it. I don't know. It's 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 mm-hmm. definitely is right for discussion. I appreciate you re- bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too, like because of the paintings, I think that the bicycle action blocking the jets of the ultra rich have increased some of the coverage or at least the discourse happening online about it mm. but anyways mm. yeah thanks so much keep the faith thank you Ray. keep the faith uh nicholas why 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 do you love new york for <laughs> your avatar oh why do i love new york oh where, where do i begin <laughs> i love everything about new york plus i used what? to live there then i had to leave and so now i'm happy to be back what part of town are you from or do you live in I live in uh, the 20s. I live like on a tree-lined street. 
No, the east side. Oh, like Kips Bayish. Yeah, a little or... bit lower. I live okay. effectively. I live in like a postage stamp and a tree line street. Hmm. <laughs> All right, I lived in high school. We were on thirty eighth between first and second, and that movie theater down there on like twenty eighth. Yeah, was our. It was new at the time, and there was <laughs> Borders Books in there. That's right. We spent a lot of time in that little complex. There's a PetSmart. Yeah, I think the PetSmart is still there. Yeah, the 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 borders didn't last, but the PetSmart did. I saw Chris Kattan in that movie theater once. I'm just talking about how old I am. Yeah, I think I think he's a at least he was one of your neighbors. I'm not sure if he was anymore. I saw him a couple of times over there. Yeah, I I probably went to like I probably I probably hosted well hosted I probably went on like. Two dozen dates in that movie theater, <laughs> <laughs> and none of them, none of them ended up anywhere. I think. Oh I think no! I, I probably a better chance they've gone to the pet store. No, no, that I reflect <laughs> upon it. <laughs> or oh, Borders, actually, Borders, Borders is a natural joke. I don't know why I stayed away from Borders. <laughs> I should have gone to Borders. Uh, I read a book. Uh, LOL. Yeah, I, better like better like next time. Something. Yeah, I'm, what's I'm, in your mind? I'm literally running out of gas here on a school night, but I had to tell you, after mm-hmm. speaking to you and you said, oh, this Pete Buttigieg biopic, so mm-hmm. I was like, oh, how, how have I not seen this? So I go and I watch it and the entire time I was feeling terrible because I actually found it really good. I really wait, thought wait, it good. Okay, I, okay. Thought, I thought the date night was not awkward. All the things what? you pointed to, <laughs> listen, I Look, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Okay, but Nicholas, now you've ad- outed yourself because you already confessed that you've yeah. been going on all of these terrible dates wow, to the I mean, movies. Wait, all of these. I think I said 10. Okay, well, it sounds like maybe you're not the best judge of what a good date is then, Nicholas. Maybe we have found the root of your problem. Because <laughs> if you yeah. think Pete Buttigieg and Chaston Buttigieg's date nights were good, well, maybe I mean, maybe this is nerdy. why you've been having some struggles. It was nerdy. It was kind of, I mean, he's a weird dude, but I mean, like, I, I, I found him more compelling after I watched it. I really did. I mean, I, 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 I got the dynamics that, you know, I, 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 yeah, I agree with some of what you're saying about, or some of what you're implying about the dynamics between the two of them. Um, I, <laughs> the free Chaston thing, I sort of now understand it a little bit better. Um, but I don't know. I didn't, I, I, I finished it and I was like, yeah, 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 no worries. You can't be. Okay. So you're telling me when Chaston's clearly hinting that he wants to be up on stage with all the other spouses and Pete completely shuts him down. You didn't feel like, damn, this man can't read a room or this man is like heartless and cares about politics more than he does his husband's feelings. Yeah. But you see, but I, you know, and again, I'm not going to say my age because obviously I'm maybe 22. I think 23 is probably fair. But the, um, I remember Tipper Gore and Al Gore kissing. Mm-hmm. And I found that way more traumatizing than, than That's fine. You don't have to like them. I mean? They could all be bad. I, I don't I'm not interested in particularly defending Tipper Gore and Al, especially yeah, I mean, since that, was, that didn't that t- stand the test of time. <laughs> I, I I much I, I found it I mean I I did think, wow, he's kinda cold. He seems a little kinda like there's there's a there's something missing there in terms of like maybe emotional intelligence, but I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't as. I, 
I felt badly about it. I, con- I contemplated not telling you, but then... Okay, okay, but Nicholas, that scene where <laughs> there's a bunch of, like, young gay kids, and he's supposed to be giving a speech about... Like, Ch- I think Chaston talks to them first, and he yeah. talks about what it meant for him to come out, and how they awesome. can do anything yeah, they yeah. want to do, and how the world gets better, and he's so warm, yeah. and he's so sweet, and the kids love him. And yeah. then Pete Buttigieg gives his little speech, and it has, like, nothing to do with being gay. And Chaston talks yeah. to him after, and he's like, you know, I think the kids would appreciate, like, a little bit yeah. of, like... Yeah, your story yeah. and like how you yeah. got you know feel about being like a gay man in politics and Peter's like i don't have a story i don't have yeah. feelings about that and you can yeah. see this look on chasten's face like he when he realizes like oh he actually just doesn't think about himself in those terms and who yeah. am i married to yeah yeah true true no i i i'm not disagreeing with that yeah for real but then yeah i mean but i i did think he he just seemed like there was something missing like he's just nerdy He's square and he's not, maybe I wouldn't want, you know, I mean, like, you know, people used to always say about George Bush, like to have a bear with him. I, I, I don't understand that analogy, but like, I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to have a bear with him, but I mean, he seems smart enough. He seems like competent enough. He seems oh. interested enough in what I'm interested in. I don't know. I, I was, I was not turned off Nicholas, by the whole Nicholas, thing. Nicholas, Nicholas, Nicholas. that bad? I, I am not a clinician. So I'm going to stay away from diagnosing Pete with what I think is a very obvious and very common emotional orientation toward the world that is concentrated among people of high intelligence. I will tell you, I just spent a weekend with all of my college friends, and there is a lot of that personality type among the group. No shame. I I love these people. I agree. Yeah. However, I do think that there is a little neuroatypicalness going on with Pete, which is not why he's bad. He's bad because his politics are bad. But it does make his relationship a little challenging with Chastity. Yeah, I agree. Who is very much on the more average end of the spectrum, it seems. And it seems in the course of this to be craving more. Yeah. I did think I like Chastin a lot more as a person than I do Pete, obviously. I mean, just uh, just the interactions. So I, I agree with that. The other thing, which you, the one thing which you kind of poisoned my mind about was the Obama impression. I hadn't realized it as much until I listened mm-hmm. to him speak, and it, it becomes almost it, it makes it difficult to even listen to him speak because he mm-hmm. it, it's the oh uh, uh, there was one in particular where he was just like oh no, oh, oh. I was like oh bro no no stop. Yep. But all right. So, you know, not, not all negative, <laughs> but he, yeah, look, he he's get... a human being. Yeah, like, he's a human maybe. being. <laughs> maybe he's a human being. What is he going to, is he driven around by one of those like little aliens in his head? Like, uh, yeah. like a men in black or whatever. But like, he just <laughs> seems like one of them people who like, boy, you just, I don't know. You just can't hang with them. Just not, it's just, it's not cool. Okay, I, I'm confused now. Are you pro Pete? Are you sympathetic? I'm to pro Pete. Pete. I I just think I just think he's he's a square. Like he's just he just he's like a I don't know. It's like you know you, you ever go you ever I mean well I'm sure you have, but it's like when you see somebody who can't dance, it's just you can't hate them for it. You just kind of like just stop. <laughs> no, no, because there are people who can't dance who are still warm and effusive. And they demonstrate that they care about other people. Elaine Bennis is very likable. In the moment when they're dancing, in the moment when they're dancing, I'm referring to right. I'm I'm yes. I'm, map, I'm mapping his lack of emotional intelligence onto 
somebody who has a lack of rhythm. And in the moment when they're dancing, you're just kind of like, you have to stop. This is ruining our entire relationship. And I just think Pete is like, he's, he's like missing rhythm. He's like, he's just, there's something there that's just not clicking. Yeah, Which is why he was able to be so cold is, with his with his partner because he yeah, just he's, what, what's missing is empathy, caring, compassion, yeah. generosity, vulnerability, oh. Oh. <laughs> and it's a lot more important than being able to dance, in my humble opinion. But look, I I love that you watched that. I appreciate you calling in, and I think that we should try to get a watch party going because there's there's a lot. There's a lot to no, choose. No, I watch it twice. But I did have this one question for you, right? Sure. So I was I, I watched a thing with Joe Suincione and it was crazy. Mm-hmm. I, actually I didn't mm-hmm. think it was crazy. I I, I, I watched the, the post part as I thought it was crazy. Like people talking crazy to you on Twitter. Every once in a while I'm at work, I open my Twitter and I just see like some madness. Mm-hmm. There was somebody there like and I was just wondering, right? Like when you get caught in this kind of like viral shitstorm where you're like at the center of some, does it make it, does it make it difficult to like even just think about what the argument is? Does it, are you, are you now stuck? Do you feel like you're stuck with that position? Are you not able to change your mind? Does it, does it kind of harden you to kind of create, create a team around you to protect yourself? Do you know what I mean? Because I, I feel sometimes no, I remember getting into an argument once in college and it got like all of this like, mad energy around it and at some point i was like you know i've stopped caring about this i don't even know if i agree with it anymore but now i'm i'm whipped up in this kind of like us versus them and ugh, i lost well, for one, I think <laughs> the irony is that i barely like what position what position did i take exactly i didn't think you what did. is the position that's so objectionable well you just he was like for me, the way I heard it, right? I mean, um, this is, you know, I hope everybody doesn't start commenting on my, on my nonsense. But the way I heard it was he was kind of just saying things which he, had, which he hadn't really fleshed out himself. So mm-hmm. he had, like, kind of arguments like, oh, do you want to see Ukrainian babies die? I mean, okay, nobody, uh, bro, nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. And you were just kind of saying, well, but isn't there another, isn't there another way of looking at it? Mm-hmm. And because he hadn't fleshed it out, he, took, he decided to go in the opposite direction, which is... Like, I don't know. He just, he decided to go aggressive, mm-hmm. which just was, I don't know. Like, and then he got embarrassed because, uh, because people were taking him on. I mean, it just seemed like, I don't, I, I didn't feel like you were saying, oh, I feel very strong in this way, very strong in that way. You're just kind of like, why are but, we I doing mean, so this that, without questioning that, that's, that's why we're point. doing it? That's my point. So if you ask me, am I backing away from a position? Do I feel pressure to be in a position? Fucking no. Because I didn't even make a position. <laughs> I didn't even take a position. That's how right. crazy all of this is. I asked the man some questions about himself and he, yeah. like, dissolved, <laughs> apparently. Fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. I'm not playing that game. Right. <laughs> you want to kill Ukrainian babies. <laughs> right. So, you know, sometimes there are moments where you go on on a limb and maybe you made not your best argument and you feel like you don't necessarily, you wouldn't have wanted to die on this hill. For me personally, this is not one of those times. It's incredibly easy. I mean, I won't say incredibly easy, but the, this shit is so bad faith yeah. um, that like, I'm very pleased to have been able to kind of uncover the insanity. I shouldn't, the, the kind of inconsistency in the mainstream argument. And to force people to have to begin to articulate their point of view. And maybe in the course of doing so, somebody will articulate a good 
rationale for Joe's position. But Joe did not, in my humble, subjective opinion. Yeah. So I, no, I, you know, like, I don't love being yelled at or whatever, or, you know, being photoshopped into genocide Barbie or whatever, but, you know, big deal. I've been very appreciative. I'm very lucky to have a wonderful community that includes people like yourself. I'm very lucky to be independent. So as much as they tried, there are no, like, financial consequences for me. I'm lucky to have the platform. And I feel like it's my responsibility in some ways to like bear the storm. Like how do I justify my existence here in this space? How do I justify my salary? How do I justify anything if not for putting up with this shit and feeling like, you know, I'm in a position to articulate the views that I hear in spaces like this and people like you and to, you know, to, to interview people who I have the privilege of having proximity to like Joe in doing this work. So I, you know, I feel exactly like where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. It's mad though. Like people are talking crazy. Well, I mean, you know, you're, you're something. Yeah, man, it's wild. These people are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, people are crazy. It's, you know. I, I, I think, I, sometimes I think I'm crazy because I, I, I'm about to tell somebody to go fuck themselves. And I don't know. Like, and then I look online and people are like, Shit, I don't know. I, I don't know where people get that kind of energy. I just don't get it. Yeah, I mean, I look. I do think that they also they're they're telling on themselves. So, you know, they're making the, they're making a case against themselves by saying some of the more vile things that they've said. So, on some level, like all I have to do is sit back and let them undermine their own case. And so it's you know. It's, it's so, it, some people are probably like working it's, marketing. Like they're probably just like regular. I mean, I just, it's just well, one of them. Like, one of them was the former energy. ambassador. Was no, the was, was the Austrian <laughs> ambassador to Ukraine who called me a reptile or a subhuman? I forget if that was a reptile person or the subhuman creature. That's I forget. Awesome. You know, but these are real. A lot of these are real people. Yeah. So, you know, and I mean, whatever. Yeah, I think it's hard to make. Yeah, but it, I don't know. It, it, I, I, I come from a, I come from a country where, you know, I come from a part of the world where the U.S. has played a bigger role than maybe certainly, well, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to qualify, but I mean, it's played a big role. And I mean, you know, the answers as to why the U.S. went to the Grenada, for example, or why the U.S. would have, you know, why the U.S. took such an interest in Cuba or the case for, for interfering in, Venezuela now, the case for, for supporting Argentina then, you know, all of these things that they're just, they're not, they're not easy answers, right? And, and, and your case, the case you're going to make is not going to be a perfect case. But, you know, I, I don't see why you can't just say, look, I, I sort of think that we should do this. And you're right, there are lots of holes in my argument, but there are going to be some arguments where there are lots of holes. Just because I can't answer all of them doesn't mean I'm a bad person. You don't have to freak out and just be like, I don't know. But it, it just becomes this kind of like us versus them. I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong. Or it's just, that's not life. I don't live in that world. Yeah. Well, look, I appreciate you calling calling in and uh, providing, you know, empathizing with me in the way that people to judge can never do. 
Oh, <laughs> listen, I, I didn't find you all that empathetic with my, my multiple fail dates at the AMC, <laughs> AMC Odeon, what it's called. It's <laughs> true, it's true, mate. It's totally lacking in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to note that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Me, maybe me and Mayor P have more in common than I like to yeah, well, yeah, Perhaps. <laughs> I, would, I would just caution that there's, there's a similarity there. <laughs> All right, you got me, Nicholas. Thanks for calling in. Amen. Thank Keep you. Keep the faith. All right, Michelle, what's on your mind tonight? Hey. Oh, my God, that was too funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I was just a couple of things on the episode. It was a great episode. Um, I felt like, I feel like the thing about appeasing Russia because they're a nuclear power is just such a bizarre point because we are the nuclear power who has used the nukes. Mm-hmm. So how do we, you know, with America, and I think this this would go for the intervention question too, like with America being this power that goes in and behaves the way it does, like I think the thing we have to keep in mind is that the people making the decisions are never making them around morality. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. not... That's not why they were making these choices. And like their actions there make it really obvious when they like go in, do coups, privatize countries, public resources, putting governments that are going to, you know, um, basically give the US what it wants, like preferential deals, uh, stop wages from going up, shut down unions, do anything like that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that there is at least with America existing as it does now with the role it's played in the world in the past hundred years. Like I would say that the criteria would be like a, a country would need to ask the world community for help. B you would want to send in reconnaissance missions that with not armed to like check out what's happening and like determine Mm -hmm. if it qualifies and then see like keep America the, fuck out of it like let all the other countries that haven't behaved in this way you know go in and like if we need to give them financial support or something like that i i don't know but it doesn't seem like a weapons that our country is profiting off of are ever like humanitarian support it's making it's killing people it's destroying property it's not making it better I think there is a very good argument to make that Russia wouldn't have entered if we hadn't already been arming the Ukrainians to go and attack their own people. And like, yeah. that's yeah. why it's really challenging to go back and reverse that argument. And we'll never know, right? And we'll that's, never know. That's the catch 22. It, it's unfortunate. I mean, strategically, if America had just played nicely, the onus would be on Russia to just to be in the position to justify its actions more so than the conversation that we're having right now. Not that it obviously yeah. isn't wrong for it to have invaded in the first place. But if, if it were me, I'd be wanting to have a clear, like a, a clean slate as I went to try to make my case in an international stage for why I should then at that point intervene. And America did the exact opposite. And we we are we are in we are having this conversation because it made those kinds of choices. Yeah, and and I think it's hard to say like if we're arming, I guess you would ask that question about Texas and like if Texas wants to secede. And the thing I think I would point out about that is like 
okay, once a coup happens and and we backed an extremist right wing coup, like in 2014, it's not like what if Texas broke away? It's like, what if the West Coast wanted to break away after let's pretend January 6th was a coup and it actually happened and they succeeded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of Trump's people, you know, have taken over the country. The government you believe, and in this case, it was the election was over. So like it was, it was an elected government that was overthrown. Like it would be them invading us after us being like, nah, nope, I'm sorry. I'm not doing I'm not going to live under a Trump coup like this isn't what we voted for. This isn't what we wanted. And like, you know, all the Canada, extremist views that go along with that. And so then Canada comes down and tries to defend the West Coast. Against yeah, the East Coast. I don't know. And, and, and you assume that like, Canada invades, Canada invades <laughs> California and has to send in. Well, the- it, yeah, and if Russia and if Russia was actually like aligned with Putin, which like I, it's not like, or if if Trump was actually aligned with Putin and whatever, like if any of that was real, like say that they started arming that right wing militia to like come get us, like I yeah, I just don't. The argument doesn't. The, the side that we are funding is the side that's shutting down the trade, like the ability to unionize the ability to it's like privatizing all their resources it's doing all those things we are arming them to attack people who didn't agree with that so that's not it just it's not like texas wanting to go be free it's like hey a right-wing coup took over the country and you want to be separate is that really crazy and is that really not something that we have an ability to like empathize with and understand that the solution might not be to go in and gun them all down Mm -hmm. until they submit i don't know yeah i don't know either i don't know either (laughs) when we get into these kinds of conversation hypotheticals i so wish and i mean this sincerely i really do wish people like joe or whomever would just talk to people like aaron and bronco because yeah like I'm not saying, like, there could be legitimate, like, maybe not Joe, but someone with a really strong historical understanding of what's gone down and who also supports intervention against someone who has a very strong historical understanding of what's gone down and who doesn't. Because I think it would be so clarifying. It would be, so, I, I genuinely want to know, not because I want to see some slugfest or because I want to see some, like, blob creature owned or anything. I like I I find myself kind of ill-equipped to truly even understand what might be legitimate flaws in like Aaron's argument because they won't talk to each other. Yeah, like, Aaron will talk, but the other side won't talk to each other. To talk to the Aarons of the world. But and I mean, so, isn't yeah, that go ahead. isn't yeah. that exactly what it was with like Iraq and anything like that? Like the point is that's American foreign policy for a reason. I think like they always get people to go up and talk about the babies in the incubators. That's, that is what we do. It's not to rationalize humanitarian anything. Like you can look at the economic angle of it and understand why America would support the government reconsolidating despite what any people in that region might vote for. And I think the only real thing that you can call for that's fair is like, you know, internationally not overseen by American, but other international neutral parties, like, overseeing a vote 
on what they should do, that that's the only way you could do something that was fair for the people there. But but why the other side wants the region? I mean, like, yeah, it's because it's resource rich. And they've said that publicly, like the right sector people talk on TV there and publicly say like, yeah, the, this is about resources. Like, you know, there's a, they've, I've heard Ukrainians on the television. They're literally saying like, there are 1.2 excess, 1.2 million excess people in the Donbass who are basically useless. And we don't need to take them into consideration. So yeah, if you live in that country and you hear that being said on your news, I don't think people here take it seriously that like, we don't hear that on Fox News. It's actually not that extreme here. Even though Fox News is terrible and propaganda, we don't hear what they're hearing there. And like their fear is very, I think, justified and real. If America was interested in anything humanitarian and not about those resources then being able to be privatized, it would be a very different conversation. But I think we have to understand that that's not what America is. That's not what we do. Yeah. Oh, that's a puppy. <laughs> I think you are the puppy. You're making solid points, Michelle. I think it's I, just. Yeah, I, I have nothing to say. You said it very well. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know. I guess, like, yeah, the, the only other thing I would say is, like, in terms of, like, how do you determine when to go into a war? Even World War II that we use as this clear example. Really, America largely profited off of that war. We didn't win the war. We we had a pretty small impact overall. We nuked Japan. And we profited because it was the first time in history where a country made their allies pay them back all the money. And, like, we didn't help a lot of the countries who were our allies. So I don't know. It's really hard to even make. It's like... uh I think I think there you'd have to find a situation where America actually entered for the right reasons and behaved in the right way and didn't do an operation paperclip and didn't do, you know, what we did, didn't have half of our oligarchs funding the Nazis. It's really hard to say. And the fact and the, the fact that it's so difficult to come up with that example is exactly why anyone who wonders why people are skeptical of this one just isn't paying attention. So I appreciate exactly. you calling in, Michelle. Totally. Have a good night. Thank you, Bree. You too. Keep the faith. All right, Tucker, how are you doing this evening? I can't hear you, Tucker, even though I see you're unmuted. <laughs> Tucker? All right, Tucker. We'll see if we can come back to you. What's on your mind tonight, Jonathan? Hello. We can hear me, right? Loud and clear. Awesome. Yeah, I don't want to uh, keep you from your bed because I know you got to get an early start tomorrow. But uh, I like I really loved this episode, and particularly like I I feel like Branko doesn't get enough credit the work that he does and he was like yeah he was one of the I know you've had talked to him before but uh, I mean in general people forget like he was one of the earliest 
people like along with Matt Taibbi and uh, Aaron and Max to really start asking questions about the Russiagate narrative. Uh, you know, he wrote that marvelous book about Joe Biden attempting bravely to warn us what kind of man he was and what kind of president he would be. All correct, I might add. And, uh, you know, he just, uh, like, I feel like there's too many people, especially in our section of the left, that either don't read his stuff because it's in Jacobin, and he's a marvelous writer, and uh, or, you know, just aren't aware of what he's done. I really appreciated that Eric that Aaron, you know, made reference to his article, which was indeed marvelous, um, you know, and, and kind of gave through him that, that credit that, that he deserved. I hope like more people will follow his work, but it was just a, like, it was an awesome conversation. It was the perfect follow-up to the Serencioni uh, conversation. Like it really touched on a lot of the important points and, you know, obviously you're not going to, you know, in one podcast episode, answer all the questions in detail, but like, it really was, I, like, I felt it, it canvassed these issues really, really well. I, I just thought it was a, it's a marvelous standalone episode on its own. So yeah, I just, I let you know, I loved it. I appreciate that. And I also agree, re Bronco not getting enough uh, attention and people should also check out the wonderful article that he wrote uh, in the wake of Katie being fired by the Hill doing some investigation into the changing the change of management that's happened at the organization that might be behind some of those choices. Um, so all around, I think he's great. Me too. And yeah, like I said, I don't want to, I don't want to keep you too long. Cause you know, if you're, you're tired, like we ought to let you sleep. So you're, you're fresh to bring us awesome content the rest of the week. Well, I appreciate that, Jonathan. I'm on my last legs and I still, I think have to rally and figure out how to wash my hair tonight. Okay, but that's my problem, not yours. Let me get to um, – thank you for calling in, Jonathan. I always love to hear from you. And I thank you. And I your chats, your comments today on the Patreon. Um, Aaron, you look like a new caller, so let's hear from you. And then I'm going to see if I can scoop up Brad, who I think called in earlier and wasn't able to talk. What's on your mind, Aaron? Can you unmute yourself? Aaron going once, Aaron going twice. All right. Can't say I didn't try. All right, Brad, what's on your mind? I finally got through. Can you hear me? Whoop, whoop, loud and clear. Man, I've been trying since September. I always I always call when uh, I'm on my way home from work, and then I put the kids to bed, and I hop off, and then end up at the back of the line. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. That's life. That's how um, I I only got to listen to half the episode today because there's something going on weird with my Patreon payment that I couldn't figure out annoyingly, but it was really great to see uh, Aaron back on the show and he's awesome. And I love seeing how he's developed as a journalist since watching him like look kind of like a deer in headlights on democracy now. And he's grown into this, <laughs> like, I mean, well, all due respect, he's, he's incredible. He's such a great journalist. And I'm glad that he's like on with the gray zone and, really has the the takes to be taken on all things global politics and American politics. It's really impressive. And it's always nice when you see uh, different people that you respect in the, the left social media sphere and uh, journalistic sphere be comrades. Uh, I agree. I, I love the little love fest. Well, that's maybe. <laughs> yeah. I liked the, the kind words they had for, re- for each other. 
Yeah, it yeah. felt restorative when so much on the left right now feels like the opposite. Yeah, I was wondering. I, I feel like I know that uh, I don't know how much Aaron participates in this, but I know that Max Blumenthal can can like throw some turds Jacobin's way. But I'm not sure if it's like he often will he'll call anybody laptop liberals. I love him, but because <laughs> he's so incredibly snarky. Um, but uh, I was wondering, like, I, I don't really follow Jacobin too well. And I didn't even really get to listen to all of the half of the episode today. But I was I wanted to hear more of his takes on everything. It, I mean, it seemed what I did listen to. It seemed like they were in agreement on most of it. Yeah, it, I, I get that impression. And I know that I, I've, I've watched Bronco on the Katie Hopper show a bunch. Uh-huh. And I've seen him in other other contexts like that. So I strongly recommend hearing more from him on other podcasts if you're interested. And of course, yeah, following and reading his work, you know, whatever you want to feel about it, Jacobin is the flagship left publication. I think there's a diversity of perspectives that are represented there. Yeah. You know, it gets a a certain kind of rap, but, um, uh, you know, it wasn't all anti-force the vote. It wasn't that even Stephen split. Right, right. Right. I mean, yeah, it can't be all bad takes. Yeah, I have I have many friends who write for Jacobin. I came close to writing for Jacobin at a certain point after oh, the campaign wow. ended. They offered me a gig over there and, you know, before I started Bad Faith. And right. I don't know. I just I, – I want all of the left magazines to be good. I want them all to be successful. I want right. – I, like, I, I don't want – I'm not ever rooting for anybody's failure. Right, right, of course. I mean, although I was like, you know, scrolling. Except for uh, Owen Higgins. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> right. just kidding. <laughs> of course. I was scrolling, scrolling Instagram, hoping that you might call on me and, and coming across. I don't know. I think I just follow the Mother Jones Instagram feed just to get angry. And I remember what Mother Jones was like 15, 20 years ago. And it's so sad. Like it was it was just a face of Putin saying this man is about to steal the American election. It's like such a joke. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable that, that take still exists. I wanted to ask, I feel like uh, you have so many great callers, and I love this space. I love listening to all of the in, intelligent people that call in and are able to articulate so many great ideas better than I could, and then, and then just angles that I never would have thought of. Um, I feel I was, what did I want to ask you? What do you, I feel like my um, my podcast cup overfloweth, mm-hmm. and I can't, like, it's it's hard for me to even listen to even the stuff i feel like i'm like approaching burnout and maybe that's fine maybe i I need to like walk away from it a little bit i was curious like what what are you listening to you create so much content and you must make time to listen to some things i know that you like kind of hate listen to pod save america and uh what do you listen to um i i listen to useful idiots i never miss useful idiots Uh my favorite podcast format is like some frivol- uh, frivolity up top. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I like when there's co-hosts uh-huh. and they're like, they've got a little bit of rapport and then they get into something more political. So right, right. I just really like that. I think it's important to listen to some. Uh, so, okay. To that end, I also really love the West Wing thing because it had that mix of pop culture uh-huh. and like seriousness, although obviously it's off the air. And um, they have a new podcast, uh, I think with the lever and they do it with Kate Willett, who's a wonderful comedian who's been on the show. Mm-hmm. And they talk about those um, uh, master classes. Mm-hmm. There's so many, like, neoliberal ones. Right, right. And I haven't listened to it yet, but that's on my cue list. 
I do listen to Red Scare. I need, I... To, get, I, I need to get back into that one. Do you listen to uh, Truanon? I don't. Like, I've listened to episodes, but I, I, it's not on my regular rotation. You think I should give it another try? I mean, they're, it's funny. I will oftentimes say that they're my favorite podcast, but I don't listen to them as regularly as I live because they're not straight news. They definitely, I mean, they're super funny. The rapport is so great. And sometimes mm-hmm. they cover like contemporary news. And oftentimes it's just much deeper dives into these sort of conspiratorial corners that I love. Um, although not always conspiratorial, but I just, I love their like simultaneous disdain for journalism, but also like clear, deep knowledge of American politics. And their, their snarky sense of humor is so completely up my alley. Um, okay, I, maybe I'll put them back in the, I'll give it another shot. Yeah. Just pick shot. any episode. I mean, they're, they're so funny. Brace. They're both funny. I wouldn't say the one is more funny than the other. It's their banter between the two of them. Um, have you listened to Matt Taibbi's new podcast? I haven't. How is it's, it? What's it about? It's, it's great. It's so good. It's him and, um, Walter Kern, who I only know, I think from Matt Taibbi, I think maybe he was a, a guest on, Useful Idiots, and he's an author and a screenwriter and a political writer. I mean, Matt, I think, is like maybe six or seven years older than me, and Walter Kern seems to be that much older than him. He's probably like in his early 60s. So it's like a couple like Gen Xers and their take on it's kind of based on Matt's um, weekly column of America this week. So they just touch on um, all of the this week's stories. And it's it's just a perfect, like, it's it's filled with kind of, like, both of their dark humor. Like, it's a very, like, kind of a Gen X-specific type of a humor. But just dark dark takes on and, and knowledgeable takes on American politics and global politics. It's really good. I, I really, I, I love that Aaron has been able to fill in for Matt on Useful Idiots and, and keep the ship afloat. But I really miss, missed Matt's takes on things. Mm. And because he's so he's so smart, his pop culture references are really smart, and he's he's just deep in several different pop culture areas and political areas. And he's just older, and he's been in the business longer. And I, I was really like missing that take of it. And I feel like he's found a really good, uh, a really great co-host for that side of his personality. I hope it doesn't mean that he's just going to walk away from useful idiots, but mm-hmm. it really is. Uh, it's kind of like more like two buds talking, whereas like Katie to take nothing away from her political chops that Katie and Matt aren't very similar personalities. Like they really like bounce off, like play off of each other. Whereas this is just like kind of a great kind of dark conversation about, uh, about American politics, but I, it's uh, lots of LOLing the whole time. They're, they're really good. It's worth, worth checking out. All right. I, I will definitely check that out. Citations needed is another one that I don't always listen to as regularly as I should, but which mm. I love a great deal. I think they do really important work. And also Jen Briney, who's been a guest on, and I want to have her back oh, to yeah. talk more about the Ukraine stuff. I think the work that she does is invaluable, and she doesn't get nearly enough um, credit in the space. I, I agree. I think it, I wonder if it's because she doesn't post regularly. I think she spends so much time to create these like incredibly deep dives on one specific issue. I, I think that that's why I don't listen to her as much. I, mm-hmm. I loved her. I think it might have been after you had her on the show. I listened to her too. Ukraine episodes and they were incredible. And that was where I learned that Putin 
never said he wanted to take over anything, never even really wanted to take over Ukraine. Like, it really addressed that bad translation of his oh, speech. Oh, is that and where I, I knew I had that's where I, I said it. it to Joe, and I was <clears> like, I'm, someone has disputed the translation of those speeches. Yeah. It probably was on Jen's episode. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've heard it subsequently elsewhere, but I know that that was the place because it was just such really great historical context over the over both of those episodes and that was one thing that she really dove deeply into i thought was really compelling yeah um did you i I, i've missed the last couple call-ins did anyone touch on the fact that matt Duss debating ray mcgovern on democracy now like a couple days after your joe serencio interview no i missed that did you you catch wind of that i feel like i saw that uh nick revolutionary revolutionary blackout network um, tweeted about it saying that uh, Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor and uh, a, a, a CIA agent during the Bush administration are debating on democracy now about Ukraine. Guess which one's uh, uh, cheerleading for peace? And it was not Matt Dust. Yeah. <laughs> and if are you familiar with Ray McGovern? I'm not. He's well, that debate is really great. It's it's very it's like uh, it's next door, not nearly as. Uh, as epic as your interview with Joe Serencioni, but but uh, I've learned about I, I guess I might have learned about Ray McGovern like from like nine eleven truth stuff a really long time ago. But he's really great on American politics, and he's an older gentleman. He's probably in his early seventies, um, but uh, he's just got really great intel on the CIA and how you know the military industrial complex works. And hearing him talk to Matt Dust was just incredibly great and depressing to see like what anyone that had worked for Bernie Sanders would say about Ukraine when talking to someone that has clearly much deeper knowledge about global politics and is what's much more sincere. I mean, as you actually said earlier in this call in that it's so refreshing to hear someone uh, be able to deeply historically substantiate what they're saying as opposed to, you know, blabbing a party line. But, uh, It'd be, it'd be good for you to check out. It's from like maybe last week. With it's within the last week. I'm uh, sure you'll be able to and, find and, it. Yeah, and I and I I would hope that it would compel you to maybe have Ray McGovern as a guest. He used to be on um, when when Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal were still friends. They would have um, him on their pod on uh, what was it called? Moderate Rebels periodically. Um, he would have them on their. They would have him on their uh, podcast periodically. He's he's a really great interview on um, American politics, and that's one guest recommendation. And also, I've heard other people ask about um, Michael Hudson. Have you ever? You had mentioned you were going to reach out to him. Has that ever materialized? Not yet, but it's on the list. Uh, he's so good. He's similar similar to Ray McGovern. He's like a mix of like Ray McGovern and Richard Wolf, but. Uh, but a really great economist that I feel like you guys would have an incredible conversation. Well, thank you for all the suggestions, Brad. I'm glad you were able to to connect this time. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for taking my call. I appreciate what you do. Thank you so much, Brad. Keep the faith. All right. I have got to uh, hit the hay. I see the the conversation happening in the chat, disputing whether or not, um, uh, for, uh, blah, blah, blah. Baskar was for force the vote. Uh, he was. He wasn't like very loud about it, but he, on bad faith, said he thought it was a perfectly good idea and was supportive. Um, and other people, Ben Burgess, Natalie Shore, were very antagonistic. I debated it with them on the Katie Hopper show, um, and I found their disagreements to be inadequate. But you guys can go and listen to it for yourself. 
Shout out to K Dot, uh, who called in earlier and asked about Gracie's Corner. We're going to go out to I Love My Hair. It's a children's song. Children's music has gotten pretty lit. And then I'm going to go and try to do something with my own hair. Keep the faith. Take care. It doesn't matter if it's up or